lot of people seem to expect a lot of them to die because they could be somewhat problematic feeders because they like to eat lizards, frogs, and whatnot. I'm not going to have that mindset. You know, it's not acceptable for me to have one of these die because I'm not willing to present them with the different and appropriate food items they want. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. We are back with a special live stream. Yes, it is a Sunday. Yes, it is still at the same time, though, and I am excited to be here. It has been just a crazy week. We got the holidays going on, and uh, it's always hard to get on a specific day and time when it is this, this time of year, but I I need to get you a podcast every week, so we're going to do one this Sunday, and I'll do one sometime next week as well. Uh, but this podcast is brought to you by Focus Cubed Habitats. Ashley and Steven are crushing it over there. Actually, they just they posted up a... Uh, something on i believe it was instagram or facebook and it was a bunch of arcadia lighting that they got in and uh i hit them up and got this shade dweller that i've been looking for for so damn long um so if you guys are looking for enclosures please go check them out focuscube.com as well as uh yeah you can have things like arcadia lighting put in your enclosure and i was just telling some of them uh one of my customers actually they were saying, hey, is this vision cage going to be big enough for an adult female ball python? And um, not only does do those cages have certain ridges in them, but things like Focus Cubed, they are basically building them specifically for us. So it's, I mean, it's for herpers by herpers as far as uh, they're putting extra room in the bottom. So that's why I love them so much is because they're putting extra room so that you can have the bioactive substrate. They are doing different customizations. And they are also doing things like mounting Arcadia lighting. So please go check out FocusCubedHabitats.com because they support this podcast and because they're good people. And, uh, yeah, so support Herpers. Anyways, guys, PortCityPet.com, you can check out that stuff. Um, we have a bunch of substrates. We have Rapashi. And I have some animals. I am only going to be shipping out animals until Wednesday. And I'll be frank, I don't even feel... Uh, that great about shipping now because I have shipped probably probably 50% of the packages that I've shipped have been late and two of them I think were were 24 hour delays and now it's a corn snake and and one of them was an adult female that was already cleaned out so uh, we just call that early brumation but it's uh it's getting risky to to really ship to certain parts of the country when uh, when you have 24 hour delays and stuff like that i'm lucky i have corn snakes and everyone everyone arrived well uh usually heat is worse than the cold but um but yeah i don't i don't really want to mess with these delays anymore so please if you're going to buy a snake go go do it now or hit me up now and then say hey i want to uh have this shipped whenever weather permits you know, after New Year's, and I can do that as well. Uh, so yeah, just let me know. Otherwise, we have an awesome podcast for you. Um, Kyle, I had seen posted this giant litter of these Candoya pulsini, these, uh, which is actually an animal that I used to work with that I really, really enjoyed. It's a ground boa from Madagascar, I believe. Um, 
right now. And Kyle's, Kyle's shaking his head. I forget. Oh, no, Solomon Islands. I fucked it up. Did I get it, Kyle? There you go. Um, <laughs> it's Sunday. I, I can't be expected to remember this kind of stuff. Uh, but yeah, so he posted this amazing litter of those animals and it's a lot of animals. So I can't wait to talk to him about it. Also, he's a longtime listener. You may have seen him in the comments, um, you know, during these podcasts. So he's been a longtime listener and supporter of the podcast. And I'm so glad to finally got get him on. I think I, I tried to get him on not probably a year or so ago. I don't know why. Uh, I don't know why I couldn't drag him on here, but finally we got him. Kyle Phillips, president of the Idaho Herpetological Society. How's it going? Good. How are you? Doing good, man. Um, so, yeah. you know, we got to start with how you got into herps. Oh, uh, you know, I remember being a little kid in uh, junior high in Iowa. Yeah, when I was in the science class um, and the classroom garter snake got out and I was afraid of snakes then. And I remember I was trying to catch it and it was just trying to get away. And I just thought to myself, as I'm jumping around, why am I afraid of the snake? It's not doing anything. It's just trying to run. Uh, that's when like my aha moment for not being afraid of snakes started. Uh, before that, when I was a little kid growing up in the Midwest, my parents let me catch box turtles. And I'd get to keep them overnight and feed them strawberries and let them go in the morning. Nice. So out there, um, which box turtle do you have? I have no idea. I was like four. <laughs> yeah, I forgot. I don't know. I, all these all these species are escaping my brain. Because when I was in Colorado, the, uh, the rescue that I worked with for a little while had like an outdoor pen with like all of the box turtles. I don't know if it's three-toed box turtles that are out there. Someone's going to help me in the chat, I hope. But I mean, um, they're still... Probably what's the most common ones found in the pet trade, which are what's native to the U.S. It was pretty fun. Yeah. So when did you start like legitimately keeping? Did that happen um, in adulthood, or did you keep as a kid? Besides, Boston? man, I don't. I don't know if I'm still. I'm not legitimate still, probably. But uh, I probably started keeping when I was in uh, eighth grade. I got a milk snake. And uh, I never ate. Uh, traded in for a hunter and milk snake, and it was I had him for a very long time. Actually, used him to breed eventually. Uh, before that, I dabbled in leopard geckos because the lady at the pet store told my mom that corn snakes would eat our cat, so I was not allowed to get a snake for a long time. <laughs> That's the most ridiculous statement ever. I thought you'd like that one. <laughs> and those are ornate box turtles. I had to look it up. I couldn't. I couldn't nice. say that silly on the podcast twice in a row. It's not good. That's all right. I gotta go get those uh, Madagascar uh, <laughs> over here. See, I got I got confused between the two different ground boas. You see what I did there? There's there's some method to that madness. I swear. That's all right. <laughs> so where'd you go from? Uh, I mean, milk snake un unsuccessful. I mean. That wasn't enough to to keep you from keeping again. Uh, no, not at all. You know, actually, only we had a couple pet stores here. We had a brand new Petco, uh, PetSmart, and a local chain as well. And there was a lady who had been keeping snakes her and her husband for a very long time who worked at Petco. Oh, she must have worked there like twenty five years, and she helped me out a lot. Her name is Sue. I'll send her the link. This hi Sue. 
she's pretty old now. She retired and moved to California. But she was super nice. She helped me out with a lot of things as I grew up. I had a lot of questions. And uh, until I was able to go to a, a Herp Society meeting, that was the only person I was able to talk to about snakes. Nice. So how did you, or did you start in Idaho? Did you grow up in Idaho? Oh, no. We moved like every six months to every eight months when I was growing up from my dad's job. So I was all over the country. Um, a lot of in the Midwest, you know, but I ended up out in like Plastow, New Hampshire, down in Texas a couple of times. And uh, eventually ended up here in like uh, early junior high out in Idaho. Gotcha. So what was, so that was the Idaho Herpetological Society that you had gone up to? Yeah, exactly. I, uh, I don't even remember how I found out about them, but I found out about them and I had just gotten my learner's permit and I wasn't supposed to drive my car after dark, but I went to the meeting, drove it anyhow. Nice. And, uh, it was pretty awesome. Uh, I remember just going and, uh, they had like the announcements at the beginning of the meeting and they were talking about, uh, the rosy boas that they had given away from someone's litter. Uh, the meeting before, and I was like, wanted a rosy boa so bad. So I was like, kept going to the meetings, hoping someone would give me a rosy boa. It took like four years for me to get one, but nice. that's what started it. It was pretty cool. Uh, there's a gentleman there by the name of Frank who was speaking about gopher snakes. And he loved them so much. He was the founder of the society, and uh, man, he was tearing up at the end of the, the, uh, the speech and he was just so passionate and it made me feel so accepted because you know as a kid when you're in junior high and high school and you're telling everyone you want to be a herpetologist all you get is a whole bunch of jokes about herpes <laughs> yeah essentially so when i mean for for a lot of the people uh maybe the younger crowd modern herpeticulture our gatherings are say podcasts like this you know in the in the comments or in the comments of youtube videos facebook groups um, can you explain a little bit of how herpetological societies work and kind of uh, what the benefit is over say uh the current social media stuff going on um you know it's a little different right now i think some of the social media stuff kind of fills the gap over societies used to be when there was no internet outlet for this there used to be some old forums back in the day, but it wasn't still, it wasn't the instant feedback. And you had to go follow the chain to find the picture you wanted to see. And, uh, you know, with COVID right now, I mean, this is kind of really the society meetings we all get to experience, but now we're on a uh, national timeless platform that everyone can always go back and use this resource where if you miss that meeting and that speaker that one time, you, you can never relive it. Now people can use this as a, oh, almost like a historic reference. That's really putting it in, I mean, that's poor terms to use this as a historic reference. But, you know, you're getting into it and there you find a, a video with a subject you're looking for. It can be really useful. Yeah, I think, I don't, I don't know if I've seen anyone post anything about, you know, having virtual Herpetological Society meetings right now and, and basically posting them on social media for everyone to, to enjoy. You know, it's hard. Most, most reptile people, not all of them, but a lot of them are very much, uh, not super social people and getting them to come to meetings sometimes because they're so protective. They're so used to being, uh, 
isolated out from the rest of society because of what they have and what they keep, that they can be reluctant to really, you know, expose themselves to the rest of the world. So yeah. it can be pulling teeth to get people to interact sometimes. And how is the scene in Idaho? Cause I know, um, you know, just offhand, I mean, I don't know many herpers out in Idaho. So uh, what's the scene like out there? You know, we got uh, some good people that have been around for a long time. Uh, we got local guys um, that were around when I was a kid. Uh, a guy named Earl Moran. Uh, he was big when I was little. I probably annoyed the shit out of him. Um, but he was a really nice guy. He still is. I go over and help him out now. I keep trying to push him more into Bloods and Borneos, which it's working. But he's, he's kept some for quite a long time as well. Uh, you might like it. He does breed corn snakes. He's been working with his own line of hide-sided uh, uh, blood reds for a long time now, uh, which I think is pretty cool because I don't remember seeing that when I was younger. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think I've seen that too much you know, recently. I mean, it's something that obviously we've had in the hobby for quite a bit, but I really haven't seen too many people posting up ones. Uh, as of recent. yeah he doesn't really post them i don't think but he, i think he's been working with his for like 10 years he's got some with like white heads almost i mean they're pretty nice they're pretty cool um and we got like a, you know uh ryan young he's up north luckily i've been able to you know become friends with him over the years um uh he's been a, a pretty nice guy to help me out with some advice or when we go to i've met him at shows we go out for lunch Okay, it happened one time, but you know, I tell the story like it happens all the time. But he's a great guy. He's an awesome resource, and he's pretty well respected. Um, other than that, it's you know, it's just a lot of local people. I think like it is everywhere, like uh, people that you know they might breed one species or two species, and they kind of keep to themselves. Um, uh, there's a lot of that, I think, but I don't think it's as big of a scene as like California or Florida. I mean, we don't have free range snakes like they do in Florida. We keep all of ours in our cages. But. Well, you, you do have rubber boas, don't you? We do. I still have never been able to find one, but I've only half-assed looked. Uh, I think I know where to go. I just haven't ever gone up there. Uh, but yeah, they're pretty cool. People find them all the time. They bring them and give them to the society because they're you know the kid was taking care of them. They didn't want them anymore. So one of the society members ends up taking them. And uh, they're pretty... Uh, pretty unreal honestly so that's probably a tricky situation because i mean technically i that's a protected species in idaho or no? no uh uh if you're an idaho resident and you you are able to uh have a valid hunting license you can collect uh native reptiles uh you are limited to a certain number of each species which i believe is four uh i don't normally go out and collect i might go out and look for them and try to take pictures and that's about as much as i do gotcha so when you were um with the herb society rosie bows and stuff like that is trading a big part of of what you do is that still something that goes on now you know back when i was a kid like getting in uh my late years in high school holy moly i would like buy sell trade trying to like try out different species, get an experience, figure it out. It really wasn't for me. You know, my friend would have something I wanted. So I'd go meet him. That lady I mentioned, Sue, her and I traded back and forth a few times because she would get stuff from the pet store that was too aggressive to sell. So she'd get it for free. Once I got it home, it wasn't even mean. So. 
Isn't that how that works? Right. Yeah. So when did you kind of make the transition into some of the uh, more exotic pythons and stuff like that? You know, uh, in my early to mid twenties, I uh, had gotten out of snakes to get into horses and I, I went with horses for quite a few years. And then uh, I had the opportunity to kind of get back into reptiles. And actually my girlfriend, uh, Christine, she encouraged me to get back into the whole scene and encouraged me to become part of the society again and help out. And, uh, you know, I thought about the species from when I was younger that I would always wanted to keep, but it was either didn't know where to get a good one was or the information wasn't as prevalent, or I honestly was afraid of them because of their bad rap. Uh, I, I kind of went through the list. I made a list of different species I wanted to have. And that's kind of where I went. Yeah, I mean, did you go Did you go bloods and short tails um, right off the bat as far as once you get into pythons, or what was your first python? Um, yeah, pretty much. I mean, this go around, I think everyone kind of, with, with life fluctuating, you know, you know, you might jump in for a little bit, but for some reason you have to sell things and you get back out. Um, at the time before this, I kept for about four or five years, I did uh, sand boas and I had ball pythons. Um, you know, you can't say sand boa when, when James is in the chat, right? You know, it's not allowed. Well, he knows I kept sand boas. We, we've chatted. I sent him some pictures of stuff I had. Yeah, he just won't shut up about him in the chat now. It's like that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Sambo is I didn't uh, ever think were that cool until I kept them, but they were pretty fun. Um, but uh, when I got back into it, instead of trying to keep what I thought was kind of trendy, uh, I kept what I really always wanted to get, which was uh, really blood pythons. Really, had always fascinated me. I always remember reading the pro exotics articles in Reptiles magazine, and uh, thinking they were so neat. And uh, they had such a bad rap, so it took me a long time to really just take the plunge, and I, and I finally did. And it's uh, I've become a hoarder. I have a problem. So, what are you interested in when it comes to them, um, like species-wise as well as morphs, or what are you into? Um, you know, I I try to be pretty uh, focused for the most part. I like to have nice reds. I have. Uh, I really like stripes. So I have a lot of different types of stripes and different things that are stripes. Um, I, I'm excited that as I've bought different stripes, I like that they're turning out to be like their own individual mini projects, or I have a whole lot of different things so that I can always mix and match and still get what I like, but maybe something really different or really cool. Um, I've got some, what they call zigzags, which are really nice. Uh, I like those. Um, I've got a slack line. Um, I've got just some genetic stripes. I've got a lot of albinos. I've got a depositive antinig. Um, you know, I like them all. Uh, I do have some Borneo short tails and some Sumatran short tails are the, uh, of the chrome head variety. Uh, not those dirty black ones. But, oh, that doesn't sound good. No. <laughs> Hey man, those are those are the ones I like. I mean, I love, I love. Well, both of those, all the Samajans are awesome. Um, I can't like exactly what Dan Magana likes. I mean, 
So when you, as far as like sourcing out these animals and stuff like that, were you getting them on fauna, morph market, Facebook groups? A little bit of everything. Um, I've got a bunch of animals in this room from Ryan Young. Ryan, uh, even back in the day when I knew him before because of ball pythons and other things I knew, he was very selective with what he had. I remember some of the ball pythons I had were like only one or two gene simple animals and people had no idea what it was, but he was so selective with the quality of his animals that I just blew everything else out of the water. Uh, and that's held true with his bloods. They are very nice. Um, how, do you pick, a lot of, how do you pick a good red? Cause I know that they change over time, right? So what exactly are you looking for? I know you said there's a lot well, of different patterns, but color wise. You know, I think there's a lot goes into that. It's like, what kind of red do you want? Do you want a brilliant, like Twizzlers red? Do you want something that's a, like a strawberry pink red? Do you want something that's so dark red, you are not even sure that's like an oxblood, like deep purplish red? Like you've got to figure out kind of which shades of red you want to go with. And that's what's really cool because, you know, uh, really in bloods, the, the, some of the prettiest, if not the prettiest, are just the normals. But there's such a great variation in just the uh, brilliance of color. If you, it's what, pa what palette of red would you like? Uh, and beyond that, you can go, do you want something that's going to have bright yellow patterning? Do you want to have something that has high gray sides? I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff you can go with for selective breeding to really try and nail down and produce. Like you've seen with some of the uh, very uh, good breeders out there, like, you know, Matt Turner, uh, Kara. Uh, man, I have a lot of stuff from Matt Turner. Oh, my gosh. Uh, he's a nice guy. I've been able to chat him up a lot he's been a lot of help to me too um you know you know everyone's been really cool it's been it's been nice to have uh what i consider some friends internet friends you know it sounds more legit than an internet girlfriend so i might as well just call <laughs> my friend yeah it is more legit so what are you as far as uh how does like a dark red animal with yellow i mean how does that translate in baby form can you tell from the parents i i think lineage can really show you what you're hoping to expect um i, I think that's your best bet if you've got like i mean if you got two brown snakes you might get one kind of reddish brown one um uh, but you can't just expect to put two brown ones together and get really nice babies you know, you, you use nice to make nice, you get nice. Um, as simple as that sounds, that's kind of what it goes with. And sometimes using those, those nice adults, sometimes you can get some amazing babies. Now, I don't have a ton of experience of breeding. I have my first clutch that hatched in June over here. And then I've got eggs due to hatch in about another uh, 10, 10 or 12 days in the incubator. Then I have another female due to lay in about uh, 30 days. So can you tell us a little bit about that first pair that you bred? You know, I don't know if you remember the show you did about like uh, what to do when things go wrong. And I was talking about that snake that showed up with a busted face and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I actually paired him up with my T-positive albino because they're both stripes. They're both really nice. Um, and they're both super mellow. So I really was hoping to produce some nicely striped babies that were red and they were super mellow. And, uh, you know, the striping didn't really happen. 
So what I think is that one of them is maybe a genetic stripe, one isn't. So I've got some kind of stripey looking patterns, but I think they're all going to be quietly, quite nicely uh, colored animals. And none of them have ever struck and almost all of them have eaten great from the beginning. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So were there any like hesitations or I guess for the people who are looking to pair up their first animals and I mean, Blood pythons aren't really, uh, you know, those are large animals and they're pretty particular animals. Um, was there any considerations that went into doing that? Uh, yeah, you know, I think there's a few things to consider. One time, always remember when you put two animals together, you're going to get either more animals or less animals. One animal is going to get hurt <laughs> <That's very true. laughs> or die. Or you're going to you know, understand that that's going to produce more animals when you do that. Okay. Uh, and be prepared for that. Um, the other thing is have a goal, have a vision. That doesn't mean like just because you chose this past, you you want to produce this type of animal. This is your vision. You want these beautiful bright yellows and these nice reds, and this is what you're going for. That vision will take you down the path of producing quality animals. Now, it might branch off into some other side projects that are of quality, but instead of just fumbling and stumbling around and just buying a couple of snakes that you found cheap, and making more babies, it's not offering anything to the species or the hobby to further the species in terms of quality or furthering their, their better temperament or anything like that. And now are there any type of like, cause I know bloods can definitely get some type of stress response, right? So is there anything in which uh, you have to be careful about? I mean, I, I'm in like all the blood Python groups. I'm a little less active than I used to be. But, you know, everyone always gets in, they get their new snake, they're trying to feed it for the fourth time by the fifth day. And they're also in the process of taming it uh, during that first week. And my whole thing has always been less is more. Make sure your husband is right. doesn't matter if you want a tank that looks beautiful and is huge and everything. That's not necessarily what's best for the animal, especially a new animal that's stressed. These guys and a lot of snakes really don't like a lot of space. They feel super exposed. They're, they're not going to be happy. They're probably not going to eat for a while. Uh, and a while is you know, usually my standards. I, I try after 14 days of them being here and no interaction unless they went to the bathroom. And it's just a maintenance interaction to change water or paper towels. Uh, I really just hands off, let them settle in. These guys, I've gotten some uh, young adults before, and it took them six, seven months to settle in. They used to flop outside of their tub, crawl around the floor, get in the corner under a table, and just pee all over everywhere like a loose fire hydrant, uh, and then freaking hiss at me like no other. And they were just stressing themselves crazy. And it, it just took a while for the animal to understand that I wasn't going to harm, harm them. I can pick up that snake without an issue now. I used to get scared shitless. I didn't know what was going to happen with that snake. But it was those 10 pound snakes just flopped around like a loose hose and I can barely handle it. <laughs> Such an awkward animal when they don't want to be held too. Oh gosh. Yeah, they, they are. Uh, but you know, if you just take your time, don't force things on them, work at the animal's speed. I think that's where most people make their mistakes. They want to do things the way they want it. And they want to do things at their own speed instead of what the animal needs and what the animal's speed is. So you you put these animals together. How exactly did you go about the actual pairings? As far well, as breeding, like how often and 
were there any considerations with like weather pressure or anything like that or seasonality? Oh. Or- <laughs> I mean, I, I would, it's so dry up in here in Boise. Yeah. It's like a high desert. I mean, it's snowing right now, but uh, really I would just kind of watch the animals. I would kind of like watch the females. Uh, you know, for the first two years I was trying to breed, I was trying to breed two females. I had a mix, uh, miss uh, sex female. It was told to me as a male, which happens with these guys sometimes, eh, kind of often even. And uh, I was like, what the hell? These are the hardest snakes to breed. I'm talking to everyone. I'm like trying to figure it out. So when I had gotten that other male and he was all prepped and he was looking good. And I was like, man, he's definitely a male. Like I could tell he was a boy. And uh, I saw his junk when he came in. It was impressive. And uh, <laughs> I was like, you know what? I wonder if that one male is a female. And I threw him in there and he locked up with her in like five minutes. I'm like, well, I feel like an idiot. But, you know, every year, if you, uh, if you ever get back into bloods, uh, if you get in the groups, you'll notice almost every year there's someone who has a, a male that lays eggs. Mm. Uh, it is very common, it seems like. Um, but it's fun, you know, I, I like that snake quite a bit. Uh, both of them are really nice. The female, I keep looking over. When I come in the room, she won't stop cruising, so I open the tub, and she just sticks her head out a few inches to look around, and then she goes back in. That's <laughs> what, when she puts her head up, I look up over here at her. So now that's... That's awesome. And uh, I didn't know that because usually say we usually get, I guess, I guess that's the way we usually go the other way in which say I sell a female and it ends up being a male because I couldn't pop it correctly. Um, or you couldn't get the hemipenes to pop. So, I mean, at least I guess you had, you had that male on deck and now you have two breeder females. Did you, did you want to, or were you feeding that female like a male? It, you know, I don't, uh, I don't feed real heavy anyhow. You know, I, uh, I mentioned that gentleman, Frank. Uh, he passed away uh, pretty much exactly a year ago. And I was in, in charge of trying to find homes for all of his animals that uh, uh, survived him. And uh, he has, they're still alive now. His ball pythons that were wild caught, he got in the, I think, I think last, they're imported adults and he had them since like the late eighties, early nineties. So they're, they're, they're anticipated that they're about 45 years old. And, uh, he didn't ever like push feeding. He just fed as they needed it. Uh, maybe oversimplified way to put it, but I feel sometimes like some of the feeding charts that are out there are to maximize growth, maximize profit, get the animal to breeding size as fast as possible. As seen and you know maybe in in some groups of animals uh you might see it a lot where people are breeding like a two-year-old year-old snake uh because they fed it every other day uh mostly ball pythons yeah and i wonder someone someone at home is maybe like well my care sheet says that ball pythons live to 25 years old how is that happening um i don't know if you saw this story but that, yeah. that parthenogenic clutch from that 62-year-old uh, python at the St. Louis Zoo. Exactly. And, you know, and I think they probably had that snake on just a good regular schedule. They had no reason to feed it a ton or, or push it beyond its means in terms of uh, accepting food. Um, so, you know, I, I just, I think, I take that as note. The other thing that happened 
Oh my gosh, I should not have drank carbonated water. Uh, is he had a blood python who passed away um, a few, what was it, about five years ago? And he was like 32 years old. He was a year older than I was when he had passed away. And uh, that was uh, incredible to me. And he had kept that almost that entire time. And that's way back. If you think about the age of that snake, he had that snake when nobody kept bloods. And uh, he kept it in a Neodesha cage. And uh, I mean, he was. Which is like uh, not what people do now, right? At all. Yeah. I mean, but if you think about what people are trying to do sometimes and make a mistake about a fish tank, Neodesha is actually uh, all sides are blocked out. Just the front is is clear. So it's really actually quite a bit better than what a lot of people try to do with the fish tank. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I don't know if no one or if you haven't seen Neodeshas, they're like vacuum formed. So there's really not much. It's super simple, but there's also like not much humidity escape. No, and they're kind of like a weird slanted shape and they always miscolored yellow. Uh, yeah, they, they, they always like pea yellow. There. Yep. But they were like the go-to before Visions really became available. And uh, I mean, they, a lot of people still use them. It may be kind of cumbersome, but they still work. Yeah, every once in a while you see a zoo collection or a, like Venom Lab or something, and then you see a good rack of, of Neo Deshas and you're just like, oh, and they're unmistakable. Oh, yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, I never, I never had one. I never uh, had the pleasure of owning one. I've had them before. They're pretty cool. Uh, I wouldn't want to keep a blood in one just because of when they go to the bathroom, they're, they pee a lot and uh, they like to tip over the water bowl at the same time. Might leave you a little turd in there too, make nice soup. And, you know, I can just imagine that getting in the cracks for the sliding glass door and maybe leaking out over the edge or something. But you know. Yeah. So Messy. what, what kind of, and cause we're kind of alluding to it, when you are going to, to sell the babies and everything like that, like what considerations do you need to take when educating new keepers? Because you know there's going to be a certain group of people who want to put in a fish tank and stuff like that. And uh, do they do well in that kind of situation? You know, uh, I have only sold two. Uh, they to a local friend of mine who has short tails. Mm-hmm. And he has uh, two of my Borneos that produced a couple years ago. And uh, that's only two out of self. I have the rest of the baby still. I've been so nervous to sell them to anybody that, I, that like, I'm also attached and like I care for them. Uh, I don't want them to to go into the wrong house. But that's, a, that's something you have to face when you breed, I think. You, you know you're producing these into the hobby. You can't keep them all. Uh, I mean, but I think taking your time, really establishing the animals, uh, Figuring out the best way you want to try and propose the animals in terms of, you know, this animal is, if you want to provide an enclosure with it, if you're going to be willing to shipping or not, if you're going to sell it locally, uh, you know, do you feel like your local community is mature enough to care for the species you're working with? I mean, these are all things you have to kind of consider. Um, I think once the weather gets nicer in the spring, I'll probably uh, order in some shipping supplies and uh, get ready to ship out some of these babies. Uh, you know, I honestly have thought about putting these babies in a fish tank because I, I mentioned the mom comes out and just puts her head out and looks around. All these babies explore like crazy too. Really? No, they're not phased. They're not stressed. I I, don't, I almost wonder if like they could work in a fish tank. 
minus the ventilated top, which now there's fish tanks or uh, reptile enclosures that don't have a ventilated top. Or, uh, you know, you can cover them so you can keep humidity in. I, I wonder if these guys would be able to take it because nothing bothers them. Yeah, because I think, you know, a lot of times you at least see people say, you know, keep them in a tub. These things do not move anywhere. They're very cryptic and things mm -hmm. like that. And I think we say that obviously with ball pythons too. And then uh, we see people who set them up in a certain way in which allows them to explore and they usually take advantage of it. And it's probably, you know, right, like you may have to be, you may be swimming upstream a little bit with trying to start a fish tank. It may be a little bit harder, but like maybe it's worth it. Maybe it's better for the animal. I don't know. I wouldn't want to say that uh, for new blood python keepers to do that whatsoever. I, right. I think get some savvy, some experience of years of different species under your belt. Um, I've seen a lot of times where people were, have kept uh, ball pythons for a long time and they are trying blood pythons and they are just having a world of, of issues because it's, it's a different type of snake that requires you to read them and, and uh, figure out what they're needing and really pay attention to what they need. Where you know it's, you know the ball pythons kind of like, uh, I mean, they're very forgiving now. You know, I remember back in the late '80s, early '90s, going into mall pet stores and doing the reading in the mid '90s online and in magazines. They were very hard to keep. They wouldn't eat. They're all wild caught. Uh, There's a lot of issues. Your corn snake was the go-to pet snake, and uh, Burmese pythons and boa constrictors. Those are like the three main stakes of keeping snake right there. And then eventually ball pythons came along. And uh, I mentioned reading those reptiles magazines by Pro Exotics uh, article specifically, and even on their old website, they talked about that they really felt that with uh, years of work, that blood pythons could be the next ball pythons in terms of being tame, mellow, uh, manageable, and easy to care for uh, once that people understood how to care for them. Now, a lot of this information of really what temperatures they do well at and really the, the more uh, advantageous ways to keep them so you run into less issues is, is pretty available out there, but people still put them in 95 degree enclosures with, that it makes them feel exposed. The extra heat causes them stress, causes problems where, you know, it's the information's at your fingertips. So, Yeah, and I think a lot of the the amount of mutations, the amount of different looks, different phenotypes that are coming out of blood pythons. I, there's also probably almost as much, and I heard, is there a pied or something going on? Um, there's probably just as many ways to go in these things, or there will be. There's, I think there is one or two uh, uh, caught and imported, and they're in someone's possession somewhere. That's all. You know, only People have only seen one or two pictures, but that's about it. Uh, if there's more information on there, I don't know it. I think the uh, from what I've seen on those pictures versus normals, normals are prettier to me. Um, How dare you? Um, so, no, I'm just kidding. So um, when it when you are getting babies started, um, getting coming into the enclosure and getting those eggs for the first time, um, talk about kind of the setup and everything like that for the eggs incubation. Oh, I got a, I have a friend uh, locally. His name's uh, JD Morley. Uh, his son wanted to get into geckos when I was part of the society, like pretty heavily, and so they started buying geckos and everything. And I was, you know, there helping him out, kind of talking to him. And uh, now JD does geckos all on his own. His kid's gone, 
And uh, one of the things he does is he builds an uh, incubator. He takes uh, fridges, freezers, whatever, and he puts uh, fans in them, messes with the circuitry, and puts heat tape or heat cable in there, puts false wall. So he made me an incubator. And, uh, you know, I've got it set up with a herbstat. And I've got it set at 86 and a half. And when I, I use, like, I have, like, 16 temp guns of different brands. So I kind of know roughly what the variation is and I temp them and they're usually a, uh, right around 86, 85.6, you know, right in there. Uh, and uh, I've got them on vermiculite that has barely any water on it. And then uh, two holes on the sides of the tubs, excuse me, I have them perlite, uh, the white stuff. And on the bottom of the incubator, I have a tub full of water with no lid. Oh, so you're basically, so you're humidifying the whole incubator just as yeah. much. I mean, really less in the box, more in the incubator itself. Yep. I mean, that really makes a lot of sense, right? Because like eggs wet, I mean, they don't fare very well wet, but you don't want, yeah. you want that humidity. Yeah, I found that out uh, the, the hard way. Uh, when I had gotten my first Borneos, uh, I had was shipped a gravid female without knowing it, and uh, she laid eggs. And I panicked because I didn't know they were in there for a couple of days, so they're a little dented ends. So I didn't have an incubator ready. I had one sitting there, so I threw it together super fast, and I was worried about it, so I had lots of water. Well, I had the water level too high in with the media, and a bunch of the, the eggs had got wet. And so they, out of 15 eggs over a month span, I ended up with five because they had gotten wet, and I just couldn't recover. But the five babies I got out of that, I kept one. I sold the other four locally to my friends, Earl and Josh. And, uh, man, they're, they're some nice babies. It was kind of a, a nice little surprise. The mama had been produced by uh, Nick Botini. And, uh, nice snakes. Nice. You're, uh, you're a lucky guy. We're going we're gonna to get back to that because that's going to definitely come around later in this conversation as well with uh, gravid females. Oh, oh, yeah. I don't <laughs> know if that's lucky, dude. Holy <laughs> Or, oh, or cursed. I don't know. <laughs> That's pretty fun, though. It's different for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, getting those those babies out, um, the the bloods are the ones who take a while to shed, right? Those yeah, uh, actually, my my babies, uh, one of one of them, just shed. The first one to shed was like yesterday. Nice. They have taken forever to shed, but and they not eat even before the they one. shed, right? Yeah, they've eaten like 20 times. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have the biggest one in there is not even shed. Uh, when I'm doing this, I'm looking at the, the babies. I'm staring at them. So. And, and how do you take them from out of the egg? Um, you know, do you keep them together? What do you do? Do you separate oh, yeah. them immediately? Uh, so what I do is, uh, so this, usually uh well usually in the last two times i've ever done it the whole time ever uh i've taken a tub of water and uh, very shallow and i've got it to the same temp as inside of the incubator and uh i put them in the water and they live together communally kind of for i don't know how many days four days maybe three days two days i i can't remember i just kind of watch them and then i and then i think they're ready to go ahead and go into their own tubs uh, it seems like, I don't know if keeping them together at that time makes them less nippy because they're bumping into each other all the time. They're less defensive, but it keeps them definitely humid, 
uh, keeps them very hydrated and, uh, you know, they got the little belly button that's uh, closing up and uh, really lets that close up. And, you know, of course, I'm changing that water quite a bit. But it's, it's worked out really well. Uh, it's some good advice I got from several experienced blood guys or people. And uh, it's worked out really well. I like it. Yeah, that's what's, that's what's weird about that animal is, like, there are these little little swamp slugs in which most most animals if you if you have them in water you're looking at like scale rod or something like that but then i've seen ones that are if they're out of water for a certain amount of time they get they look desiccated rather quickly so um like humidity is super important in the beginning there huh yeah you know and and, and i think it's something that everyone has to figure out because where everyone's climate is different everyone's house is different uh, and their setups are different and their heating source is different. So it's different heating sources might dry out humidity faster than another. Um, you might have a tub with fewer holes than another person. There's a person with a whole bunch of holes is going to struggle with keeping that humidity constant. You know, you just got to find that balance that works for you in your house and uh, watching what your snake does. And part of that's watching if like, if their skin looks kind of extra crinkly you know, if they're, if they're, their, their scales will feel kind of rough if they get too dry, if you get them too wet, they look like, you know, I guess kind of wrinkly. So, and shiny, but uh, you know, it, it, for the most part, I feel like, you know, I've experimented, I've got some tubs right now. I put a lot more holes in than normal. I struggle with it a little bit more. I think I might just tape up a bunch of the holes, but you know, it, it does hurt to experiment and figure out, you know, mm-hmm. you know, if the snake's not having cause harm, there's a lot to always be learned. There's a lot of things to try. Like one thing I've been doing is I just throw random different substrates in on top of their paper. Uh, I don't know if it makes them happy or not, but there's some that it seems like it makes them uh, chill out a little bit more. Hmm. Uh, but that's probably not true. <laughs> hey, I mean, trying a bunch of different things is always important. And it's like, you know, this isn't exactly a formula. We're not really baking a cake. So uh, do you, you know this? The, the whole experience reminds me back when I had that one Honduran milk snake for so many years. That dude led, he started out on uh, AstroTurf, then he went to Reptibark, then he went to only moss, like three inches of moss. <laughs> then he went to uh, Aspen. I kept on a white calcium sand for a while. I mean, that dude lived <laughs> on absolutely everything, and he was flawless. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, you know, you just, you know, do, do I recommend people do that? No, no, no. But, you know, that was learning experience for sure. Yeah. Well, Kluber's are like the Honda Civics of the, uh, they just keep on going. But, uh, they, um, when blood pythons, you separate them out, all that good stuff, you're feeding, do you feed live right off, right off the rip or do they eat frozen thawed? I don't remember. Uh, I think I tried both. I think I'm trying to remember what I did. I think I got a whole bunch of them to eat frozen thawed right off the bat. That's what I did. I had frozen thawed and uh, I got them to eat. And if they weren't interested, I sent it the baby. Uh, uh, what did I use? Like mouse fuzzies, small mice, whatever they were. And uh, I sent it them with some chicks. I had a whole freezer full of chicks. And I sent it in with that and a whole bunch more took it after that. And then eventually they just all took a couple of them didn't eat. So I did offer some 
smaller mice for them to get them going. But uh, the live was actually my uh, last resort uh, on me on these babies. So, do you ever consider things like feeding chicks, or obviously you have them frozen for a reason? Do you do you mix up diet? Oh, yeah. Uh, on these babies, I haven't, um, but in general, yeah, usually I do. I do feed chicks to a lot of snakes in here. There's some of the bloods aren't as big as they might uh, could possibly be because they got a full year of chicks only. Hmm. Is that kind of uh, an easy availability for you, or what was your idea there? Um, I wanted to try and mix it up, and I had a few other species that I wanted to try chicks with as well. And uh, there was a sale at a hatchery or something I found online or if I got male chicks of whatever species I want, I got them for like, what I got? I got like 140 of them for like $70 ship. And, uh, <laughs> ended up being pretty cheap. Yeah. People don't realize that there's a lot of byproduct from these poultry farms, these male chicks. And I mean, they essentially give them away for free. Like they're so cheap. The downside was I was at work all day and they ship them. They're live. So they're at the post office. They keep calling me. When are you going to come get these chicks? They're stinking. <laughs> Yeah. come get them and you know eventually i left work a little early went and got them and i i had to gas them all and put them in the freezer those adorable really little chicks oh my yeah. god they sent me some of the prettiest chicks ever and i go oh, i'm going to hell <laughs> put them in the baggie. uh yeah so uh yeah mixing up diet i feel like a lot of us you know because customers or people who are going to buy your babies you know, they're going to be feeding rodents. So at least I try to always, and you probably doing the same thing with the frozen thought. It's like everyone wants their animal on frozen thought rodents. Um, so that's what you kind of go with. Yeah. Cause I, I refuse to ever keep rodents ever alive. I will never breed them. I'll pay somebody to do that dirty work for me. Always. Yeah. I'm uh, uh, I did it for a little bit. I'm, I'm back on the snob wagon when it comes to never doing it. So yeah. I worked in pet stores for too long. And I remember we had this whole like group of rats that came in that were sick and they went out for testing and they came back inclusive for the bubonic plague. We had to put them away. Like we had to put them down. But in the meantime, caring for like 50 rats in this small like enclosure for uh, isolation was disgusting. It was the grossest thing I've ever done. So. Yeah. Oh, there's someone at my door. Uh oh, memento. Uh, I don't know what you want to talk about. Uh, hey, just go into the door. It's okay. Hope everyone's enjoying the podcast uh, and the live video. I'm sorry, Joe left. I guess it's not important to him. He'll come back eventually. Oh, yeah, messed up. Maybe I. That was uh, my my neighbor giving me a Christmas present. Oh, that's nice. What a guy. Does he know you do a podcast? Now he does. Oh. Yes, Darren, it was the booty call. 
<laughs> it's the COVID police. You have a gathering. <laughs> yeah. They heard too many voices in here. Yeah. So is that, that's an adult male or female? Well, this is the female. I leave the tub open when I come in, uh, in here. She's the mom to my babies. Yeah, she's got like a stripe, you know. And that's that's essentially a wild type, right? I mean, oh, this is an albino. This is a T positive albino. Oh, okay. Or, no. Oh, I've got to stop assuming I know anything about snakes today. They're from Madagascar as well. <laughs> so she's she's just that chill though. You open up the tub yeah. and you just take her right out. That's awesome. Well, I had to get the hook because she like looked at me like I was maybe food for a second. <laughs> so I was like, oh shit. It's I'm that like, oh. it's also that that time of the day where it's uh where the snakes are a little bit more reactive. Yeah, I didn't want to scream and get bit on camera. Because I totally <laughs> would pick the shit out. But she's never struck at me. It would have been an accidental mistaken one, that's for sure. But, you know, it's pretty easy to read these snakes. They they telegraph what they're going to do. So if you open your tub and you look at it, they give you the quick head turn and up. They're thinking maybe they're going to get food. They're ready for food. You better have a snake hook ready to, you know, let them know, hey, no food's coming. Chill out. I'm just going to pick you up. Yeah, I think that that's the thing that people don't realize in the beginning. You say like, oh, my snake bit me, not realize, realizing that like it may have been your fault as far as whether it be time of day or getting to know that particular animal when they're going to act like that, when they're not, or like just straight right. up putting your hand right in front of their face when you're getting them out of the enclosure and stuff like that. Um, mistakes still happen, or if you're going fast, you'll still you'll still make a mistake here and then. But I mean, so much of it is just kind of staying away from the sharp end and knowing, knowing your animal. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I felt pretty awkward once you left. I was like, uh, I'm gonna go <laughs> yeah. when in doubt, just whip it out. Uh, Morgan Rose said, is that normal size for an adult female? I, I think so. That's, that's pretty average. I think they can go be a little bit smaller. Uh, they can be a little bit bigger, just like people. I think people really don't put that in perspective sometimes with these exotic species. Uh, they think that everything has to fit this size, and they forget, you know, people vary in size and even body shape. And, and the same thing with the snakes. You may have a species that is generally kind of heavy body, but you might have a little bit more slender built one or one that's a little bit more heavy body. It's just the variance is natural. Right on. So, damn, I had a question, and it, and it slipped me right there. But, um. Oh yeah, is there is there a weight that you're looking for for females? I mean, we know ball pythons. You know, females fifteen hundred grams are here all the time. Is there something similar? There's or some some guidelines. A lot of people go by like they want their females to be at least twelve pounds. I don't weigh them. I just kind of go by like the age and body condition, and I think they're ready. Uh, for me, I try to hit if it's a snake I've raised or I've had or I know how old it is. I, you know, I try to have them be ready to go at their fifth or sixth year. I'm not looking to go before that. You can definitely do that. You can definitely have them go at three years old if you'd like. But, you know, I'd rather have them have the maturity and the size all together in one package. And, uh, no, you know, in my mind, from my experience over the years and things I've read, seen, experienced, uh, the maturity is sometimes what people forget. They'll have to grow so fast. But maturity is not there when they breed it. They can have some complications. Now, is that anecdotal? Quite possibly. But it's what I think happens. 
Uh, so I'm trying to limit, you know, well, you know that that saying, you know, it's something Frank used to say was, uh, you know, put two animals together, you're gonna have either less animals or more animals. Is you know, I don't want to have a less animal because I bred a snake too early and I caused it some sort of complication. Uh, that was avoidable if whether I waited another year or two, make sure the size finished out maturing, the body weight was correct, whatever it is, I'm going to do as much as I possibly can to make sure that this animal is going to live as long as it can and be as healthy as it possibly can while I'm in charge of its uh, well-being. Yeah, it seems like we're seeing more and more uh, keepers and breeders right now kind of taking that approach, the low you know, lower feeding frequencies, just taking your time, um, you know, thinking about the long-term health of the animal and, uh, and and like, we're not in the, we're not in the rat race anymore. I don't think, uh, well, there's still blood people who are in the race. Right. But, uh, I mean, as soon as there's a banana blood, I mean, all, everything's out the window. (laughs) That's the thing. It's like, uh, yeah, I guess 1512 pounds, is that limit, but also, or I guess, is that marker in which they said that they're, that they're ready to go. But, um, yeah, man, I've always found that time with my animals is, is just yeah. more important. Like this female I have up here from uh, Matt Turner. Um, she's going on five years and, uh, you know, she's just a smaller animal. I've fed her quite well or since I've had her for a couple of years now. And, you know, I've just kind of come to the conclusion that she's just a smaller animal. And so, you know, she's been pretty swollen up. She's coming out of blue, so shed. And it seems to be consistent so far um, that with my temps and how I keep, because I do provide belly keep, that the females are laying their eggs about 25 days after they come out of their shed. And are you seeing or do you expect to get, you know, less eggs from that smaller animal? Is that, you think that's like the only... That would be the only drawback. You know, uh, the albino female I just had out is smaller than this other female I have down here. And she had more eggs um, than the big girl who has eggs in the incubator. I literally had no idea what she was going to give me because she's my biggest blood. And she gave me 11. Hmm. So So 11 is in, uh, as far as bloods go, what's the, the normal clutch size? Um, so far, I've had 15, 15, and 11. Okay. Um, so, so that uh, big girl's even lower, the lower end. I, I don't know about that one. But just in my my small experience of, yours, of breeding yeah. them. Yeah. And I'm not very experienced in, in breeding. There's a lot of people who are in the community that can really talk more about that. Uh, who have got a lot of data that they can provide with saying that I got this large of a female uh, and then she consistently produced this many eggs. And I, but I, I think it's just one of those things where like some people procreate quite a bit, some people procreate quite a bit less and uh, maybe the snakes are the same way. Yeah. I'm trying to get some Mormon snakes. I really need to, uh, to really get this thing going. And I don't know what to say about that. Sorry, I just offended the whole Mormon community. Uh, there's a huge community of that out here. And then, there's, uh, there's a lot of listeners of the podcast that are Mormon as well. There's just a big demographic. so They don't uh, practice that much anymore. Ah, I see. Yeah. Well, so, they have a lot of, I mean, they, they have a lot of kids. 
they're really nice families, but they don't do like the one husband and like five wives. Oh, really? No. I mean, my snakes anymore. do it though. I mean, how many, so when you have a male, how many females are you willing to pair that animal with? One, because one. I have, uh, that's my goal. That was my idea to make those two animals to make the, the, you know, the greater version of the two of them combined. Um, whether I think I see something in color hues that I think these two animals will support each other to make an even nicer offspring. You know, if they don't go, if it doesn't work out, I'm not going to throw something in there just to make something. I'll let them go and just keep on going until they're ready to, to go. Uh, I mean, I don't want to make things that are just out in the world, not attributing to the hobby. So you have, I mean, curated a very like particular group of animals and really you're looking for just very specific things in low numbers as a hobby to further the species kind of i mean eventually all these snakes i have that are one two three years old they're not too far off from being adults and ready to go and then i'll i mean i'll have about 50 bloods that are reading oh so um, shit's so. escalating quickly yeah there you go <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Dude, once it, once it once it gets rolling and then you have you start holding back snakes and then you accidentally have like 200 of them, man. That's oh, you have babies I, growing up. And, uh, I have one hold back from my clutch. I would show her, but she's like in her first shed. I just looked at her. But she's like my favorite right out of the egg. She's been the best eater out of the egg. She's got the best color. She's three times the size of her siblings because if one of them didn't want to eat, I gave her the mouse. But <laughs> nice. she's just now going into blue. <laughs> so you already have, I mean, you haven't been selling them, but you do have a designated holdback. I have one, yes. I have one that's just kind of cool looking. I don't know. But everything else is uh, is going to be for sale. Uh, I had some issues. Uh, one thing I really noticed about babies is uh, I feel like they really work off of momentum. Once you get them going, you got to really keep pumping the food into them, keep them going, keep that uh, feeding response going on them. Um, uh, what were they? They were like a month or two old. They were all doing great. I had several meals into them. I was really happy. I had twins in this clutch, actually. I just, the only ones that weren't eating on their own were the twins. And uh, the, the smallest twin did end up passing. But what had happened is I, I did get COVID. And I was afraid to come in here and really interact with the snakes as much as I honestly had like no strength. I'd walk 10 feet and I'd have to sit down because I thought I was going to pass out. I'd be out of energy for like 20 minutes. So I was basically able to come in here, dump water in the water dish for about a week and a half, two weeks. And then I would go back and go to sleep for the rest of the 20 hours of the day. And that, that really put a, uh, that set me back a most, all but about five or three of these kind of went off feeding. And now I'm starting to get momentum back that they're actually having a feeding response again. Uh, it was pretty frustrating, uh, but, you know, there's not a whole lot I could do. I mean, I couldn't ask someone to come over and take care of them because my yeah. girlfriend and I both had COVID. And yeah. we're sitting in here. Uh, it was just kind of a, a, a crappy situation. Um, but, you know, everyone's uh, bouncing back and they're all eating on their own, except for the twin that's alive. It still doesn't want to eat on its own. So, but. You know, I've heard that about twins and a lot of species. So, you know, 
I don't know that it'll ever leave. If it does, it'll go to a friend for free or something. But what's the size comparison of the twin compared to the rest of the babies? Well, the small twin that died was like maybe 10, 20% the size of a regular baby. Damn. It was the, the tw- there was definitely the one twin that's still alive was, you know, 70% bigger than the other one that was in the egg. It was, it was a really cool experience, really fantastic. And, you know, the, the snake had passed when I had COVID uh, around that time. So, you know, I wonder if maybe if I wasn't able to be on top of it more, I could have assist fed him, kept him going, maybe like pumped him up to a size where he just really had appetite. And I would definitely would have kept him as well because, you know, he was so tiny. It was like super endearing. But, it, you know, it was sad. But that's one thing, you know, you got to understand is there's going to be heartbreaks. There's going to be a low points when you are keeping, and especially if you're breed, not everything's going to survive. You may get something that's going good for, uh, for weeks, months, and all of a sudden it's just dead, and you don't know why. But we can't tell what kind of abnormalities or issues they had from the beginning. Yeah, especially, I mean, in that situation, you have one that obviously absorbed much more of the yolk than the other. Mm-hmm. That one, it's just like was out competed from from the beginning, right? So it's like that was just. Yeah. Weaker genetics, I mean, technically. They were all, like, healthy and super active and looked great and right out of the egg. But, it, you know, you could, you could definitely tell it was just smaller. And I, I knew it was going to be hard. And then I remember right before it had passed, I was able to get it a, a pinky. I just fed it, and it ended up spitting it back up and died the next day. So, Oof. How is it How is it feeding uh, feeding baby bloods, assist feeding? Oh, that's really oh, – that's easy. Um. I mean, I don't do it to all of them. I just had to do it to one or two. And uh, for the most part, it's just really tiny prey, I found. I'm not going for a big meal. I'm just going for a small prey so I can get it in there. And they and they realize that they can't spit out, so they just swallow it. And if you'd like, you can follow it up with another slightly smaller uh, prey item as a choo-choo train type of deal. And, uh, but, you know. I don't recommend people to, to necessarily try it uh, unless there's someone experienced. It's not forcing it to them. You can't injure your animal. Um, some people do refuse to do it. And they feel like if they didn't have the respeeding response from the egg, then they're just going to die. Um, you know, I looked at the animals and I evaluated that there was no kinks. There's no visual issues I could see. Uh, their body weight was good out of the egg. So I just felt like mostly it was because they were twins. They were going to be a pain in my butt to begin with, with feeding. And they definitely were. But, you know, we'll see. If it kicks in at some point, great. If not, uh, you know, I'll cross that bridge when it comes. Yeah. I mean, that might be one of those situations, huh? If it does if it does survive, you were so hands-on with that animal. I mean, that's one of those that's going to be hard to let go. Yeah. That was uh, that was actually, like, my first blood I ever had. I had or I bought from a friend. He had this crazy pattern, like, banded-looking blood with a crazy cool head pattern. And uh, I, I worked with that animal. It wouldn't eat. And I just fed it for like seven, eight months, uh, rat tails. And uh, eventually I actually got to feed on its own. It was eating uh, African soft furs. And, uh, you know, after like the third meal, I just will go in there one day and it was just dead. I was so excited. It was the coolest looking little snake and it was just dead. And it turns out that there, I think there's a temperature spike in the uh, clutch. Because I think the majority of those animals ended up dying over those that first year. Um, where, and they had some body deformities as well. And I think that pattern was part of the, uh, the temperature spike as well. Yeah, I guess I guess that's common across all species then as far as uh, 
the pattern formation. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, when it going from, from bloods to getting into a new project, um, can you talk a little bit? Well, do you have anything other than bloods and before we go into what we're going on, yeah. uh, what I'm going to be. Yeah, talking I do. About? Uh, you know, actually way back when I was a kid, I was going to the society events and stuff. There's a local guy named Mark and he had a, uh, imported pair of Kiowati super dwarf retakes. And they were imported adults. And I freaking loved them. Before so they were I, cool. You know, yeah, this is like back in uh, like 2001, 2002. Oh, wow. And uh, I love those things. Those were the coolest snakes. I always interacted with them. And uh, when I was a few years ago, I ended up getting a Super Dwarf from Garrett. And I had it in here. And he was super fun. I loved him. But, you know, my setups weren't uh, the greatest for a retake I found out. He really needed a large enclosure to explore, you know, as a lot of retics do, he was getting the nose rub and I made the decision to find him a better home. My, uh, my friend, uh, Josh with, uh, Southern Idaho Reptile Rescue has him. And, uh, you know, the funny thing is that Josh actually grew up with Garrett in California when they were kids. Really? Like they're like, their families know each other. So I was like, Hey, this is fitting, uh, fitting place for him to go and be a good outreach animal. And that's really what I got him for was to be, uh, to uh, do outreach. And then I ended up being like uh, such a helicopter parent and all my snakes. I'd never wanted to take them out to do your outreach. I didn't want someone to like squeeze them or get a disease from someone else's trash snake or something like that. So, uh, no, not that people have trash snakes, but you know, I was just so nervous about mites, disease, contamination, uh, yeah. everything. So he never left the house hardly. Uh, yeah, I do have a pair of, yeah, yeah. I have a pair of Maclots, um, oh, nice. both from Ryan Rung. Uh, I got the adult mail from him and my, actually they're my girlfriends. We went to an expo and he was there vending and my girlfriend wanted to buy a snake. And she was looking at some stuff that, uh, a bread lie from Nick Mutton. And I went over and I, I talked to Ryan and I was like, you should buy something from Ryan. And, Cause I knew him. And uh, she's like, what about this one? I'm like, yeah, that's cool. And so I opened a little deli cup. She's holding a little Maclots female little hatchling and just bit the crap out of her a hundred times and she didn't flinch. She's like, oh, I like it. Let's get it. And uh, so now I've, you know, <laughs> I've got this uh, pair of Maclots there. The male is really chill. Females has gotten a lot better as she's gotten older. Uh, the male's like eight feet long. He's huge. Um, those are a couple of the ones I feed a lot of chicks too, just so they don't get like super fat. And they seem to do pretty well on that. But I'll mix in rats and chicks in the same meal. Um, have a pair of striped spotted pythons from Ryan Young, which are also my girlfriends. And then I have a wheat belt stim wheat belt oh God. wheat belt stimson's python uh, from Ryan as well. Uh, How do you like the Antaresia so far? Dude, I kept the spotted python when I was in high school and I loved them. Uh, I don't think I interact enough with these guys because I just get eaten to death with them. <laughs> like they are just like a 100% feeding response. Uh, they've only gotten worse as they've gotten older. It uh, seems like the more fault. people I ask, yeah, it seems like people have very varying uh, experiences with them, which is why I always ask. Because some people are like, this thing is the nicest, you know, it's basically basically a corn snake. Why doesn't everyone have these? And others are like, it's eating me constantly. Yeah, you know, I think I could work with them a little bit more but they're just not my focus. They're my girlfriends, even though I love them. I, I remember I loved my spot of Python back in high school and he was so chill. 
but these guys, it's a hundred percent a feeding response. And, uh, you know, as it is what it is, but, um, yeah, we've got some tarantulas. Those are my girlfriends. She didn't have any of this stuff when we met. I, I was going to say, like, yeah, what happened there? She encouraged me to get into it. And I'm like, hey, what are you always interested in? You're encouraging me to get back to this. This is great. You know, what was stuff that you always wanted to keep that you couldn't keep in your own? She's like, I always like spiders. And I go, oh, okay. Uh, and so <laughs> we've gotten uh, some tarantulas, you know, and it's been a learning experience. Um, and uh, it's pretty cool. People always ask if we handle them. I go, no. They're like a dry land fish tank. We watch them, you know, they're very fascinating to watch. Uh, some of them are really pretty. Uh, some of them scare the shit out of me. Um, but it's pretty cool, honestly, but I'm not going to hold them. Uh, when there are spiderlings and I was moving them from cage to cage, I let them crawl on me. That's about as much as it went. So what do you have as far as like new world, old world? I don't know much of the difference, but uh, what kind of tarantulas do you have? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> blue ones i forgot like one. i kind of forgot most of their uh, scientific names but we do have a curly hair that we got as like a free little spider thing that was like this big and now it's like this uh we've got a couple of bursts of colors that i just got her for christmas that are a little uh, spider thing really, really cool we got a pumpkin patch spiderling we've got a uh it was a spiderling but it's mature now it's a uh Green bottle blue. That thing's really pretty. Uh, what else we got? So is this really what the Versicolors look like? Yeah, yeah. The, see the one that's like uh, kind of the top right? The one that's like super blue? That's what the little babies look like. Really? I'm not even kidding. No, like the legs look <laughs> super long. That's really cool. Like it looks like uh, the Iceman, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Iceman and Batman. And then in that version of Batman, you know what I'm talking. Only so many people get that reference, but yeah. Oh my god, you know that's funny. Um, what have we got? Red rump tarantula. Yeah, blue footed baboon. I think I've got like a Chilean, uh, uh, something Chilean dwarf tarantula. I think it's, I can't remember what it is. We got like a black velvet Brazilian, I think. But I. I so you basically have really enough. cool stuff. You don't just have like a Mexican red knee. Not that those are. I don't have any of those. No. No, you have the ones that you're not gonna uh, you're not gonna play around with. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm a, a huge wuss. I'm not messing with them at all. No, I wouldn't um, either. To be fair, they're cool, yeah. but yeah, they're pretty neat. Yeah, I mean, uh, snake wise, I used to have Hondurans. I got some Hondurans again a few years ago, and I sold them off. Actually, I uh, sold one to my boss. Uh, his kid, his name's Colt. He might be watching. What's up, Cole? Uh, he has uh, a nice little albino Honduran for me. And then he's got a hypo boa. And then he's got a, a new pied-sided blood uh, corn snake. Oh, nice. As, you know. So he's he's get pretty excited about snakes. Scott comes in and he tells me, my kid just gave me a PowerPoint of how we should buy another snake. <laughs> and uh, I think he's like 11, so it's pretty funny hearing that he's going through all these means to convince his parents let him get more snakes. And unfortunately, I'm an enabler, so I just they ask me for advice or help finding them one. Well, when you see when you see like a young kid with enough passion to go that far and like do that kind of thing, it's like it's hard not to want to you know encourage yeah. that. Yeah, he's doing a good job. 
Uh, I saw his enclosures the other day. He's been really good. That's awesome. I'm excited for him. Uh, hopefully he, he does better in the long run than I have. Cause you know, when I was younger, I killed a lot of animals either by giving bad advice or not knowing where to go for good resources. Well, yeah, it's like a mixture of things. There weren't as good and available resources as there is now. And you didn't have yeah. a Kyle Phillips that worked for your dad. Yeah. So, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, uh, right. yeah, it's just, a, and then you get to, you get to give someone a more positive experience, even though that never deterred you, which is impressive, but, uh, you know, more positive yeah. experiences, the more you're probably going to want to get more snakes and play with more snakes. So, yeah. And, you know, I like lizards too. Uh, my friend, uh, mentioned Josh, the Southern Idaho reptile rescue. Uh, I just gave him my uromastics because I just, you know, I wanted to, I needed to build him a big, nice enclosure for him and wanted to do a lot for him. I had a, uh, what did I have? I just forgot what the hell I had. Niagara Ventus, uh, your mastic. It's Moroccan. I had a Moroccan. He was like a little neon lime green. Really nice a little lizard. He came in through the Herp Society. He came in kind of an olive, like blackish green. Once I got his enclosure set up right, um, gave him proper lighting and heat. Man, that guy like just turned on like highlighter, like green and turquoise. He was awesome. Yeah, this is an insane animal. <laughs> what? That is not. So, yeah, if if you know anyone that's looking for a, like a lizard that's actually really low maintenance, it's super cool. Your mastics, hands down, are like the most awesome. Despite the uh, lighting uh, that they have to have, they just eat vegetables. Um, they are super unknown for biting. They're very personable. They're really cool. Their colors are amazing. They're long lived, around thirty years or so. They're really like a little tiny dinosaur. They're just an awesome species to get into. If you can get captured bred ones, I absolutely recommend getting a captured bred. It's such an awesome experience. Are these are these high heat, low humidity animals? Yeah, so 135 degrees is the Hell yeah. spot, I believe. I think I had set up for that guy on his rock. So he could go up to that much or a little lower, you know, and then I think 80 or so is low end. But they can sustain pretty decent low temperature drops at night in the 70s. So, you know, really easy to have in your house. Oh, so you can just set up a timer with like a light bulb or something. But like, what kind of yeah. light would you use for that? Uh, I had like a fluorescent uh, tube light for UVB. And then I also used a mercury vapor bulb that was UVB and heat. So he had like tons of UVB because they like, they actually need much higher percentages of UVB than a lot of other species. And that's why I think that's why he was so much happier. He just like his color just like turned on. He was amazing looking. Was yeah, those cool. those are awesome. What's the there's also like an an ornate one, right? That's, yeah, they're a little bit smaller, but like they come in like the most incredible colors too. Yeah, and it's like you wouldn't think that it can get better than that animal that I just showed. But I mean, this thing is also very, very cool. I'm about to bring it up in a second. I mean, this thing is green and blue and yellow. Yeah, yeah. They're, like, they're pretty cool. They're they're a little bit smaller species, and a lot of people keep them. They're real personable. They interact with you, and they're pretty fun. But the colors are just, they blow a bearded dragon out of the water. Oh, 100%. Why are they not more prevalent? Uh, they're not, they don't breed like a bearded dragon. They don't lay like 50 eggs all at once, four or five, six times a year, whatever beardeds do. Um, because it seems like anyone can, I mean, really with 
little effort can seem to be your dragons. It takes a little bit more effort and finesse, I think, to get your aromatics. And I think they only lay a hand, like, what, two to six eggs at a time. They really don't lay a lot at once. And you said... I never bred them, but... It's literally just all vegetables. No crickets. Yeah, no, no crickets. Uh, and then, you know, their vegetables are very particular of what diet, uh, what things they can have and what frequency. But, you know, it's uh, it was pretty easy. Uh, really cool uh, lizard. Um, I mean, uh, eventually I'll, I'll buy a house and I'll set up a super badass aromatic enclosure and have a hero again. But at the time, I was surprised with 54 babies and I had to make the sacrifice of, am I really doing him justice? I haven't built that cage he needs. And I have all these damn snakes to take care of. So with the Herb Society and all of that, was it really hard just not to have like Noah's Ark going on, like one of a million species? When I was a kid, that's what happened. Everything, because I worked at PetSmart for like a long time, like four years. I got a lot of animals from there. I got a lot from the Herb Society. Uh, it was like a rotating door of what I got in as a rescue or given to me to either get back to health or keep for myself or find a home later on. I never got to really focus on like what I felt like I really wanted, but also I didn't really know what I wanted. I just liked stuff. Everything was cool. It all caught my eye. But those two resources afforded me the ability to get animals uh, for free. Unfortunately, sometimes they were under not the best circumstances and the animals were in good shape. I mean, you know, I can say I've owned an alligator um, because of the, because of that, but you know, is there a story associated with that somewhere? Well, how'd you get an alligator? You know, they're not legal in Idaho necessarily. Not without a permit. Yeah. And so some guy had had one and he'd gone to the local lake and he was going to turn it loose. And uh, some kids, some kids literally convinced them not to do it. They had to pay the guy. Some children had to pay an adult $5 not to turn the alligator loose. And That's like, incredibly sad. But yeah. And then when they got it, they called the zoo. And at the time, uh, Dr. Wiggins was the veterinarian at the zoo. And she was part of the Herp Society. And uh, she went ahead and uh, asked me to watch the alligator for her for a while. And I think I was not too far out of high school. So I took it and it was about three feet long and I put it in the bathtub upstairs in my parents' bathroom. And uh, my mom came home from work and started screaming at me when she went to go to the bathroom because I totally forgot it was in there. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, isn't it wild how sometimes like, yeah, a kid can be much more considerate and like well-educated than a, you know, right. this adult who probably bought the alligator in the first place. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's not the first time species haven't turned up places they shouldn't have been. They found like 75 pounds so caught a tortoise in a cornfield. Ones have gotten away. Yeah. Oh, damn. The Savannah monitors. I mean, stuff's happened. It's not like all the time, but you no. Know, since I was around and part of the resource for so long, I experienced what was coming in, coming through and what we had to go pick up. You know, since I was younger and living with my parents, I was limited with what I would take on. Yeah. Were your parents supportive in all this? At least, I mean, cool enough to where you didn't get kicked out of the house and you had an alligator in the tub, but. No, I only had that thing for a couple of weeks. Um, <laughs> he didn't live in the tub. I set up something else in my room. You know, they were really patient with me. Um, my dad's still afraid of snakes. 
Really? Um, oh yeah. Uh, but you know, he, he doesn't, he can be more intrigued and fascinated by him, but he's not going to hold it. He's not going to do any of that stuff. But you know, you know, I gotta say, you know, I appreciate my dad. I, uh, cause what I do for work is I sell guns. I work at a gun shop and we've been swamped busy all year long. People like freaking out because of COVID and riots and elections. So everyone's buying guns like crazy. So I've been working so much. My dad actually built me the baby rack for these Candoya, which oh, was nice. really nice. He offered to do those. It's kind of a cool, like throwback to being supportive with that. Um, but they're really patient with, with me with the different animals that they didn't know were coming in the house would show up. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had really good parents, luckily. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. So let's, I guess let's talk a little bit about how you decided to, I mean, branch out and get this new project. And uh, yeah, what got you into these boas in particular? You know, way back in the day, you know, I, I mentioned that lady, Sue, way back in the late 90s, you know, Petco would get the craziest stuff in. And uh, they had Kanduya coming in all the time. And I always thought they were like the coolest thing. I'm like, I always thought they were like so different looking. I always kind of wanted one. I just kept watch it, watching them. And then when I, you know, four or five years ago, when I started keeping bloods, they were on my list. So I kind of watched and I found, uh, Dan Maleri's, uh videos and I started watching those and I was like, oh, this is the coolest thing ever. I was like, the guy's kind of down to earth, not over the top. He's showing you kind of the, these really cool uh, species you don't get to see much and it goes to like Thailand and stuff. And uh, I was like always impressed that like he was able to do these imports in somewhat of a wholesale manner, but respectably and the animals are always very healthy and well taken care of. And I think he's always had that, uh, that uh, reputation of doing a good job on having imports that are ready to go. And, uh, you know, you know, it just kind of lined up and I was like, well, I think Dan is leaving for Thailand in like the 23rd of this month. This oh, is yeah. his last import um, from the Solomon Islands and last import for quite a long time for the U.S. period. And also, yeah, it's I was like, about to say the Solomon Islands shuts down and opens up kind of randomly. It could yeah. be a decade before you can get him again. I was like, you know, I'm at a point where my experience is there. I have the money. I was like, I'm not going to have the chance to buy from this guy again. I wanted to support him forever. I just wasn't sure. And I said, hey, um, pick out a female for me. Here's the money. That's so why he picked out a female and sent it to me. Mm-hmm. This is what I got. Cause, uh, you guys can find his video, uh, DM exotics. He had, uh, imported, uh, 21, uh, Kendoya Pulse and I, Salmon Island ground bows. And it was 20, uh, looked to be gravid, uh, females and, uh, one male. And, uh, and I was just like, ah, just send me one, whatever. And I had started to plan and buy supplies to take care of like 35 babies. And then I had that snake for, I think, like nine or 10 days. And then I go in here and uh, there was uh, a bunch of babies. Came home from work, sifted through the whole cage, and I counted 54. Uh, with no slugs and only like two or three unfertile uh, uh, women there. And I was like, oh, shit. And... Uh, so I basically split them up into two B18 tubs uh, with uh, 27 in each in there. And they shed like within minutes of being birthed, they start shedding. So That's wild. Yeah, and if, and the, the crazy thing about that is I believe it was 
Conway, what's it, what's um, who did all the articles back in the day of the Kandoya? He had basically all the species, I guess, subspecies at the time. But I believe he right. said that he said that Pulse and I have a gestation of nine months, like at that, least. That sounds correct. Yeah. And it's like so that means that that animal got pregnant in the wild. She carried the babies that whole time, and then she was yeah. imported. And then she was shipped to you and throughout all that zero slug, zero problems. Like that's just yeah. kind of wild to me. Yeah. You know, in, you know, I've never kept Kandoya uh, personally myself. I've always kind of watched from a distance. I've been in the group for a few years, looking at pictures, reading things. And uh, when I put her in here, I noticed uh, in the tub, a lot of draping. Like, so what she would do is she'd crawl around and then she would take like the back third of her body you know, maybe about six inches, eight inches up from her vent and just kind of figure out a way to drape it across the water bowl edges. Like she looked really uncomfortable. Like she was trying to suspend the weight so it wasn't pressure. And I was thinking to myself, it's like, something tells me that it's uncomfortable and she's probably going to have babies soon. And unfortunately, I was right. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you know, there, there's nine months of wiggle room there and you got nine days. But, I mean, luckily, I'd already started to stock up and buy things, but I, I had to rush delivery some things. I didn't expect that many. <laughs> yeah, and it seems like, because um, we were talking about it, because like when I first saw that, it's like, oh, this is my opportunity. I know someone personally who has a litter, and I I wanted to get back into them. And um, we were both like, you know, these are going to take a bit to get going. I'm sure all that stuff. And it seems like, uh, not so much, huh? Uh, you know, I think I want to make sure everything's established. So in my mind, I'm, I'm telling myself six, seven months before anything is even thought about leaving, uh, me and, you know, getting in the groups and talking to people and looking at things, it looks like, uh, you know, a lot of people seem to expect a lot of them to die or expect a lot of them not to feed properly. And, because they could be somewhat problematic feeders from what it seems uh, because they like to eat, eat lizards, frogs and whatnot. But I mean, I'm really not gonna, I'm not gonna have that mindset. I'm, it's, you know, it's not acceptable for me to, to have one of these die because I'm not um, willing to present them with the different and appropriate food items they want. I have now a hundred pet anoles in another room that are alive and uh i have an order from reptilinks with their microlinks made out of frog another one made out of iguana one out of quail and i also have several hundred super tiny pinky mice and i bought the fish scent and i think it's fish juice then anole juice and the frog juice from reptilinks and so i actually offered a variety of different foods to them today and within a few minutes, I, I saw, I think, three or four of them already wrapping up one of the, some of the scented pinkies. Yeah, which so is was very, uh, very promising. Yeah, I mean, you must, be, you must be pretty happy about that. So here we got uh, some pinkies. So how exactly did you go about scenting these guys? I literally, uh, I guess you see this juice is frozen, so you partially thawed out. So I literally squirted a little bit into a paper bowl, and I just took the pinkies out and... Uh, I just kind of dabbed them in the juice, put them in the little tiny uh, uh, condiment container and put the baby in there and uh, let them go. Uh, just left them be. 
because I offered them a few of them, and they seemed to have little to no feeding response just by dangling them, like uh, the blood pythons do. Totally different feeding style, which I had read and heard. So I definitely it was like had seen several times where the people cupped them and left them. And so I went ahead and figured that was the least invasive, least stressful way for me to introduce food items to them and uh, trying to experiment and see where we're at on who eats what. And so tomorrow morning I'll go through and I'll pull all the cups out, mark who ate, and then uh, see who didn't eat and who ate what. And then I have a feeling in about another two or three days, I'll probably just go through with pinkies scented only on everyone that didn't eat. So you're going to... You're going to slowly, so you're starting off with scented and then for the ones that ate scented, are you going to keep on offering scented for a little while and get them established or are you going to try to get them off of it? You know, I'm going to have the same kind of mindset of what I feel like I'm learning from the blood babies is get that momentum, get that, get them into the routine of feeding, build that feeding response. And then once that feeding response is gone, I feel like it wouldn't be an issue to wean them off of that scenting. And even if I don't, it is super easy to dip frozen thawed pinkies into this juice stuff. So, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I can that these animals want to, to keep them going. Um, I really want to be successful um, just for these animals. They're super fascinating. They're all completely different looking. They're all different colors. Uh, it's really neat. They don't even look like the real snakes. Uh, yeah, man. So cool. they're, it's, it's between like the head shape and the patterns, there's just something very prehistoric about them. You know, and what I noticed from them, from like some videos I was watching like on YouTube, because uh, I think uh, Elijah's juggernaut just had a litter of like 38 a few months ago. And when he, in his video, before I had my babies, I noticed as soon as he goes to pick them up or opens the tub, they just all freeze. They don't move. That's exactly what they do. You just open the tub and they don't do anything. They just like pretend like they're a stick. And between like the ass or the uh, bark and stuff that's in with them and the cocoa husk, I can, I could barely find some of them just by like glancing. I'm only like a foot away. I had to open the tub and like look in there with, I mean, they're, the camouflage is astounding, but uh, their behavior is quite different. You know, I've reached out and I've, I've spoken with uh, Richard Crowley, which I believe you've talked to before. He's a huge Candelia guy, also a blood guy. So right. he's been really helpful to talk to which is nice. And, uh, you know, I asked Dan a few things over email and, uh, it's, it's just pretty exciting to have something different. You know, I really wasn't planning on having this many babies. I thought maybe in a month or two, I might have some babies and it'd be kind of cool, but I'll get to experience the female. And I don't even know what the female looks like. She's still kind of like a dark brownish color. She hasn't shed out her jungle skin. So she's still got all the tannins in her skin. She's really dark, but that's yeah, the thing so I've always noticed people... If people aren't like familiar with how Candoya, when they are imported in, you know, these are typically being brought in as wild caught animals and therefore they're going to be like down in the leaf litter on the forest floor and they soak in all the tannins from the leaves and basically it stains their skin. So most of them come in rather drab looking and then when they shed, you get what the animal would actually look like in captivity. So, uh, so that female right there looks you know, she looks brown, but she'll probably, she'll probably shed out like a light gray coloration, hopefully, or maybe. Yeah, I'm thinking she's either like a gray or like a buckskin color, maybe, is mm-hmm. my guess, but I'm just literally guessing. Uh, and that's really what most of the babies look like. They're like a light 
light tan, buckskin colored. But they change shade so much throughout the day. It's pretty cool. But oh, so you, you see different you see different coloration at different times. Yeah, that's one thing that I had read about the species is that their color swings throughout a day are so crazy. And I had read it in some different articles over the time that as people were carrying for like fresh imports, you know, throughout the day in the evening, they thought it was a different snake almost, you know, and their their relative, the the Australis, I guess, is even huge, uh, even larger uh, swing on the coloration, which is pretty cool. But I've just been trying to soak up as much information as I can. I've like found some old like, uh, uh papers written like back i don't know in the late 70s 80s about studies of uh dead candoya specimens that cut open their bellies see what they're eating i watch youtube videos like travel trips uh as uh, the solomon islands to try and figure out what, like what the vegetation looks like and the trees and everything uh, i've noticed behavior a lot of the babies seem like to perch on the edge of the water dish uh which is pretty cool and from some things i've read and seen it it seems like babies and up to juveniles might be actually uh, uh more arboreal uh, which is pretty cool but you know this is my first experience i'm not an expert i'm just things i'm, I'm going off of what i notice and, and trying to like really read the snakes and see what they need and what they want and, and also listening to what any advice people give me and reading any papers i can from people's experiences yeah i mean that's it's just really exciting to have something that, first of all, it's it's completely new and like out of the ordinary for what you keep, right? And like, yeah. uh, it's just, yeah, it's switching it up, but also kind of being thrown in the fire and having to rise up to the occasion and do all that. I mean, that must be also probably a little bit stressful, but also kind of a little bit fun in a way that you you did it. You're, yeah. You know, you know it was funny. I sent uh, a little like gift to Graham Battison and it says, I've spared no expense. And it's the rich guy from Jurassic Park. And, uh, <laughs> like, I'm just like stocking up on all these crazy prey add-ons. And like Richard was telling me I might need to get some minnows too. So I'm like, I'm buy minnows at the pet store potentially. But if I can get them going on scented pinks, I'll be really happy. But, you know, I just, I feel really fortunate that things are going well so far uh, that the mom still seems uh, healthy and, uh, things are going well, and I, I feel fortunate that it's at this uh, time in my experience, uh, knowing that I'm able to kind of read the animals and observe them a little bit better, that I can actually, I built all my other racks in this room. Uh, so, I mean, I'm able and adept at uh, building racks. And, uh, I mean, I, I don't know if anyone, I don't want to sell them to anybody, but like I like to build them the way I like them, so... I feel fortunate. Like if, if I need to change something, I will make something that fits what I think they need. And they also fit into my room's temps. They seem to like like mid to high seventies to very very low eighties. So very similar to the ambient temperature in my room. So they fit right in with the bloods. So are you keeping um, them pretty much exclusively ambient? The babies are, yeah. Okay. Uh, I know babies. Babies and bloods too are very sensitive to heat. So I am. Uh, I tempt guns to the tubs before I put anyone in over there. So I basically set up some tubs on their own before I built the rack and left them over there. And I tempt them throughout the day, and they were 78 to 82. I was like, okay, cool. I'll leave them alone. Yeah, so you're falling right in that blood python range. Even you know, with my room with corn snakes, that's where that's my my fluctuation as well. So oh, I'm pumped. Now yeah. you got a sorry. I'm gonna. I'm going to annoy the shit out of you all the time about like, Hey man, you, you sure you don't want to sell those? Like, 
in January, February. No, shipping won't be ready. March. That'd be cold. Yeah, Idaho is pretty rough, huh? That's not the best place it, to get out of in the winter. No, I, no, I don't think anywhere is because almost everything goes to the hub. And then, I mean, I've, I bought stuff from Sanboa from, directly from the Bells years ago, and it got laid over in a snowstorm on um, the way from Florida to here. And I received them in the snowstorm a day later than they should have showed up. But I was able to, you know, with, between the, the reptile shipping providers and FedEx, talking to the people that worked in the offices, they just they just patched me right through and I was talking to them. And they would go over to the shipping area, pull them off the belt, put them inside the office, which was heated for me. Oh, nice. And people went out of their way to make sure the animals were okay. They were cold. But, you know, one thing, there's a lot of learning experiences as you go, is that if you get a cold reptile that's still alive, give it a very, very long time to warm up. Do not shock the system from going from like 55, 60 degrees to 90 degrees in an hour. Like give it like 10 hours. Right. And I mean, that's probably easy enough to go room temp and then, you know, yeah. into your room and then into whatever enclosure. Exactly. You know, you know, since we're talking about this and we've touched on neuromastics and the society, I was called on once to go to an uh, abandoned uh, mobile home. And the inside the mobile home was one of those old pet store display cages with the dividers. And there was a ball python, I think a corn snake, and a Euromastix. And it had been no heat for over a month. And it was in late November, December. So, I mean, the house was only 45, 50 degrees. And they were all three alive. Uh, I thought the Euromastix was dead because I picked it up and it didn't really move. But when I sat down, I just kind of saw like a really slow, delayed movement. And I was like, is he alive? And so, you know, I put him in the box, put him in the car, and uh, just driving around town. And he started to warm up and he started to go like, open his eyes and look around. And then it literally took like then a whole 12 hours. And then the next day we put him in a rear mastics enclosure. Uh, my buddy did. We kept him at his house. He ate like a whole bowl of food. And then like the next day he whipped me with his tail. He was a pretty spunky little guy. But like it was pretty crazy to see your mastics go from like 45 degrees with so no heat for over a month at least. I don't know what they were doing before, but no heat in the house at all to eating and being at proper temps and being lively with no issues because of the you know the low the slow graduational and increased temps. Pretty cool story. I always thought it was it was neat, uh, bad for those animals, but cool that they all did. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, you're looking at a 90 degree swing. I mean, that that animal survived 45 yeah, degrees to 135. That's that's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, I don't know. Do, do those animals brumate? Do your mastix brumate, or at least go through yeah, a season change? Yeah, they they kind of go through like a sleepy period, I guess. Man, there's some awesome here at Masters groups on Facebook. And then the one picture you showed online was from a page that's not really around anymore. It's called Deerburn Farms. And they were like the forefront leaders on breeding a lot of the captive Euromastics. But, you know, there's a lot more experienced people than I am. But you will notice that they don't come out as much or eat as much for weeks at a time. They're going through like a little sleepy period. Yeah, and that, I mean the ball python. That's that's pretty rough. I don't know. You know, do you do you have any like 
So as the, the herpetological society being a part of it, you guys also were doing rescues or like, it's just that, that you guys were one of the only contacts that people found or how'd you guys do that? So it's like a multi faceted group is that when Frank started it in 1987, it was only a resource for exotic reptiles. So he got all these weird and different reptiles people people kept over the years that he got. He got a lot of Burmese pythons over the years, um, as that was the you know pet of choice way back. But uh, you know, we have a hotline number. So when people have uh, like one of like the actual humane society gets something or other other facilities or vets, they can give us a call and one of the members can go pick it up. It's more of like a network of people who are able to accommodate different species instead of putting the burden on a facility or one person that's really what's designed to do um which is nice uh, then we do outreach so you know before all this craziness we would go to a different kids fairs school fairs classrooms do all those type of things and uh, talk with people and educate them and then we'd have uh, monthly meetings and have different topics we would talk to uh, people about or have different issues we, we would talk with and then we've actually uh <clears throat> assisted the uh the state fish and game with sting operations and with oh, confiscations wow. and uh, legislative uh development on different laws and uh, uh pertaining to exotic animals so it's been a pretty uh really interesting valuable source of uh, experience for me personally and uh, you know any city or state that has a herb society I think with social media being so prevalent they really go kind of on the wayside unknown and uh, doesn't mean it's it's easy always having a society. And I think they really definitely go in ebbs and flows, depending on who's willing to make the society whatever it is that they feel it should be. So if you got a lot of people that just want to show up and talk to snakes, maybe it's not living to its full potential. Oh, my God. Hold on. Uh, if you have people who are willing to put in a lot of groundwork and time and really like make flyers and go to classrooms, baths, everything, get the exposure out, reach out for uh, different speakers, uh, you know, make contacts. You can make the uh, society quite the uh, valuable asset or the organization in your area. really depends on who's working it. And uh, it, it is what you make it, as is any group or experience in life. And that's, I think, one thing people need to remember, whether they're, they're making more snakes for the world or participating in a group online, it is what you make it. You know, we may all have those knee-jerk reactions, get frustrated, upset. But are we always bettering ourselves and our community by our learning what we think instantly? So. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it makes total sense. And I think that that not only rings true with, with your experience, but obviously look at like Madison Herpetological Society where you have, um, you know, Ryan from Zilla who has really spearheaded that and that has become a big thing. You know, that just hint, it can hinge on a couple of people and like you could be, right. you know, that, that person or you and your friend could be those couple of people that can really get these things going. And it's kind of up to us to make it happen. I think a lot of us complain that these kinds of things aren't around anymore, but I also think we could probably do more to make sure that they are around. Yeah, and exactly. And I feel like I put uh, time and effort into it over my years in and out of it. And uh, over the last year, once Frank passed last year, I was pretty disheartened 
And then uh, with COVID and everything and just not being able to meet people. And I had already decided at the beginning of the year this was going to be my last year as I really wanted to focus on what I had going on and my own collection, which I feel like it to me personally, it really shows that I'm focused and paying attention to more of what's going on in my room, in my house. And I'm in focus going on with a bunch of uh, local reptile keepers in our community. Uh, uh, I feel like it's paying dividends with my animals in terms of uh, noticing lots of different little things, uh, improving the experience animals are having uh, expert, you know, I'm actually producing clutches. I mean, I, I feel like I was able to spread my clutches apart at the times of years I wanted to. I wanted to spread them apart instead of having eggs only laid in like the spring, uh, early summer, which was the general season eggs are laid. I was actually able to to have the female lay eggs and uh, on Halloween, uh, which was uh, my goal and which is pretty fun. And uh, they'll hatch hopefully right on New Year's, which will be fun as well. And then I'll have more eggs about a month later after that, which will be pretty neat. I'll have a little bit of a, a space to get focused on each new group of babies. Yeah, yeah. It seems like, I mean, it goes with, with most things, right? You kind of get what you focus on. So mm-hmm. you're obviously shifting your focus in your collection a little bit. Say like, I know right now I'm kind of shifting my focus. And I think people ebb and flow in their collections all the time. And you go back and forth, you get into different things, you go higher and lower with your numbers, but like, you know, I'm focusing now on a different style of keeping of testing out different ways to keep animals and stuff like that. And then, so I need to, you know, get my numbers down more. So it's, so, it's too overwhelming right now with the numbers. What, and trying uh, to do that. So I know, like, what do you feel like? How do you, do you ever look back and think on your experience? Since I know you kind of got back into this with wanting to do ball pythons essentially yeah. hence your name and you really didn't stay in that and you really yeah. got into corn snakes and now you're all about poop bugs i mean i don't know if it ever ends yeah there, there is no final thing you know i'm not trying to and I, I don't think i'm i don't think i'm trying to put out the illusion that there is anymore i think i think for no. a while i was gonna be like this is what i like this is what i'm gonna like forever now i'm realizing that like I just follow my passion or what I like at the moment. And I keep, I keep a little piece of that. So like I kept the olive Python, I kept the water Python that whole time. I have a group of animals that I've had throughout the whole thing. Yeah. But, but the, the main, the main uh, bulk of the collection, all the fat gets cut. And then I keep the animals that matter the most to me. And then I get new things and then eventually I get too many of those and then I cut out the fat and then I keep the animals that mean the most to me. So I don't know. I'll end up having a giant collection of useless uh, non-breeders, I'm sure. Like, I don't know. Because I have just a bunch of pet pythons that I don't have, you know, pairs for necessarily. That's okay. I mean, you don't have to have pairs for everything. and. But I just, I always think you're the contrast that you have is hilarious in my mind that you got like the, you got a water python, which I love. I love my asses, the olive and then the corn sticks. I've always thought corn sticks are so much cooler than ball pythons. And then you're like, I'm going to get into isopods. That's what's that? All these little bugs, crustaceans with different dots on them. They're going to eat your snakes poop. That's what I'm all about. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, 
Yeah, and I got. Uh, I was just looking at the rubber duckies today. I think I may have finally. I don't know if they finally had babies. I've had like six in a deli cup for like a year, man. I've been waiting for them to do anything. Uh, so yeah, I mean they're cool. Also, um, I'll probably you know eventually I'll cut the fat with those too, and I'll have like just rubber duckies and clowns and zebras or something. I don't know. So, so like, how does that go when you go on like on a date? And you're like, so what do you do? Like, I got these little poop bugs. One's called a rubber ducky. Well, actually, well, I lead with the snakes. It was already bad enough. And then I get into geckos. And then like like third, fourth, fifth date, maybe, we get into the shit bugs. But like, not until then. <laughs> <laughs> you got you to gotta ease into it. Yeah. Uh, when I was younger, I didn't really date. But when I got into horses, dating got so much easier for me. Oh, oh my, yeah, those are like, see, what sucks is that the snakes and reptiles in general are detractors. Horses are magnets. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a much better strategy. But I mean, I think it goes for, I'm sure, like, like you have a girlfriend who wasn't necessarily into reptiles or into any of that yeah. stuff. And she probably realized this is what you're passionate about. This is what you love. And she's like, you're okay enough of a guy. I guess I'll, I guess I'll tolerate it. And then eventually she's into it. And then like, you know, it, it goes from there. Yeah. I was kind of getting out of horses when we met and, uh, I was, uh, more like big into hunting and, uh, archery and, uh, she always liked snakes. So it worked out pretty well. Uh, I mean, we're both animal people and, uh, pretty lucky to have her cause she makes a lot of things happen around here that affords me to do this in terms of help like taking care of the dogs right now as they have to go outside and four dogs go outside when it's snowing. Usually what I try to do when it's cold, but I really appreciate her. So it makes it easier for me in that aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's a, you know, that's, things aren't always easy. Uh, people got to realize on, on, unlike sometimes like your pets, like your dogs cats there is much more of a emotional bond between you than your snake and you so you might have a life experience or, or event come up where you're not afforded the ability to keep reptiles anymore and i think you can talk to almost every reptile keeper has had to go in and out of keeping reptiles because job change family change uh, spousal change something's happened it's but so I think Keeping reptiles is, is very unforgiving in a way, or animals in general. Yeah, yeah animals in general, but you know, you know, especially the reptiles. And uh, you know, as long as that 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 flame is still flickering in the back of your mind, you know, if you keep that passion, that fascination going, you can still still make the most of it in your life. Whether it is reading a whole bunch of reptile books, or assisting a, a local rescue rescue group, or volunteering to help out uh, a presentation for reptiles at a kid's classroom if those ever become a thing again, um, you know, there's a lot of things you can always do, even if you don't have your animals to help out others. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's almost as if, you know, the pilot light still burns. You can turn up the gas. Sometimes you kind of got to turn it down, uh, but it's, it's always there. Yeah. I feel like my house is on fire right now. If we're talking pilot light. (laughs) Yeah. You, you turn the knob for sure. Yeah. No, and it's uh I don't think it's ever anything to be ashamed about to like get down to a certain amount or like, you know, people 
it's really the the housing situations you see that all the time on facebook and stuff like that um yeah. i've pretty much i have sacrificed a lot of things in like my personal life in order to make sure that i would always have a space for the animals or like if we got in a weird situation like even with the dog like some people are like put on craigslist oh i can't i can't go into an apartment with my dog uh can someone take like no, dude, I will go above and beyond to try to find something that will allow my dog. I mean, that's right. like a member of my family. Exactly. I mean, I, that's uh, like a, it's like a human child. I don't have a human child, but I can imagine that I may almost love it as much as I love my dog. Almost. Yeah, I don't know if I'll ever have kids. I mean, my parents are getting the experience of grand dog between my brother and I. But, um, man, I... I haven't had a dog pass on me in a very long time. So I have an older dog that's like 11 or 12, but she looks like she's going to be gone for quite a few more years. And whenever any of them pass, that's, that's going to be a week or two off work. I don't know. I won't do real well. Oh yeah. Uh, Dixie's nine. And uh, oh, man. yeah. Yeah. So I haven't even, you know, she's very useful. Never fun to think about, but you know, it's, you know, at some point you have to realize how old your animal is and make accommodations for their age. And then uh, it's, you know, it's never expected. Uh, Dude, why do ball pythons live to 62 and dogs live 10 years? <laughs> what is this bullshit? <laughs> like, you know, I don't think, I think ball pythons are super cool. I think ball pythons have a bad rap because of the, I'm not shitting uh, on ball flat. pythons. I'm just saying, I know, dogs I know. Are better. I, I know. I'm just saying in general, so many people in, in different other groups outside of ball pythons rag on ball pythons. But I think what happened is when the, the money makers, the flash in the pans gave the ball python group, so to speak, uh, such a bad rap that, you know, there's some really dedicated keepers out there, but you know, it's all overshadowed by the people who got in and out of it in and out, in and out, in and out over six months and just, you know, overpopulated the industry with lesser well, not lessers, but lesser quality uh, ball pythons. It's, you know, how often did people selectively breed their pastels to only have the nicest one? Mm -hmm. No, they didn't. They they just made as many as they could make. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess the reason the reason that it turns me off is that the motivation is different than I think I like to think of as far as like us keeping and breeding animals, or at least how I want to think about it. Like I want, like I, I asked Casey Cannon today, like how are those Zeo river loc He has locality ball pythons from Stephen. Oh, Tillis, yeah. Cause Stephen Tillis was over there in Africa and he has like legit locality, which is like, I, I can get down with something like that. Cause it's like, it's so niche. It's so there's going to be 90% of people that are going to be like, that's so stupid. Um, Have you ever seen those? Uh... Get it. Have you seen those Volta or Sub-Saharan ball pythons? They get like a blood python size. Yes. Yeah, that's so Why aren't those like everywhere? Those are the coolest things ever. And the thing is they do, um, they import them like a little bit too much. I don't know if you, like every year I, f I feel like I see them uh, imported, but yeah, I don't see them around. Females. But I've never seen babies for sale, captive born and bred babies. I'm sure they're out there, but. Yeah. But yeah, I was like, oh, the baby's born like three times the size of a regular ball python. It gets huge and it's tame. I'm like, that's the coolest pet. Dude, pick up a pair. Okay. Come on. 
They fit right into well, not really. Ball pythons need. I hear. Uh, I think. I think Dan Magano has a pair. Oh really? No, I'm just giving him shit. <laughs> uh, I didn't know he was a ball python hater. Nah, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, don't, I don't think he's in the chat anymore. But I mean, it's. Uh... Oh. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, there's, and dude, I mean, I saw this crazy, like, striped white and yellow albino thing today that I like. That's a ball python. It has nothing to do with the animals. The animals seem fun and all good stuff. Yeah. I've kept plenty of I them. mean, I have a, a banana in my room now. Oh, uh, really? The Reptile Expo, my girlfriend wanted the banana. So we have one of those. That's, uh, yeah, that thing is, bananas are just bait for like any younger the kids that are getting into it like that they catch your eye so easily yeah. like it's everyone cool. uh, it's cool looking man yeah everyone can I enjoy freak it. out because every time i open the cage there's more black specks on it and i'm like oh shit where do these mites come from and i put it under the magnifying glass and I'm like oh it's a dot yeah that's a, that is the weird thing about them right they just freckle out right yeah yeah and then we've got a what the reverse stripe uh cali king as well that she got so it's like all white with a thin black uh stripe on its back it's oh, really cool dixie's uh she's breaking down my wall back here oh man my, the wall to my cabin what are you doing girl she she literally just came over here what are you doing uh, but yeah man we did it uh before dixie knocks down the set uh where can well is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we didn't touch on did I forget? Um, I feel like you and I should start a group for uh, vegan reptile keepers. Because apparently there's quite a few of us. Like oh, I'm not. Me, after my and... surgery? No, I'm not. I started eating meat after my surgery. Oh. I, uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't do it. It was too hard. Because I couldn't like get up and cook or do anything. So oh, I man. just I went meat eater. Oh, geez. Yeah, there. There's a, a faux Vietnamese place that opened up across from my work. They know me by name when I call. I eat there every day. They have some yeah, that's the yeah. You can really lean on. Um, I guess you. It's really. It's a lot better if you live in a city with like some culture because, you know, like Indian food. Obviously, they have so many vegetarian options and vegan options, okay. and like yeah, different Vietnamese foods or like you can get ramen or something. Um, as long as you avoid the chicken flavored stuff and like there's there's definitely good things to eat you just gotta you gotta try a bit harder and, yeah you know uh, i know being lazy one thing i really wanted to come across during our talk is you heard me talk about a lot of people's name specifically i called them out or given recognition and uh, i think that's really important to just appreciate the people that gave you their time as you were uh, beginning and uh, or even now as you experience a new species or something that's going on and they help you out or they give you the time of day or they give you advice when you're buying a snake from them um i, I really just wanted to try and recognize everyone i uh, i could think of off the top of my head that has helped me out um, that's been really really good to me uh, so uh, that was to me more important than me getting any kind of uh, spotlight or uh, attention i'd I don't have a website. I don't have a fake business Facebook page. Um, <laughs> Everyone has a business. Come on. What are you talking about? Fake business. No. We're all. 
Uh, I mean, you sold uh, you, you sold know. two blood pythons this year. Come on, you're yeah, a businessman. My buddy, yeah, <laughs> to my buddy, my other buddy Josh, uh, Savile. But uh, you know, the snakes are fun. I, I've been afforded to make some internet friends and some real life friends, and have some pretty awesome experiences that. You know, there's there's a lot of things that, you know, experiences I've talked about or I have forgotten uh, that, you know, if, if my life was any different, I would have never been able to experience these things and experience these, uh, to some extent, rare animals. When I was younger, for example, this lady came with like four or five shingleback skinks in like 2000 and did a presentation at our herb society. And it was like the coolest thing. It was the only time I've ever seen shingleback skinks. She's like, so I think cool. this one's legal. And these other three were illegal at one point, but they're here now. And uh, it was it was pretty cool. I don't remember her name at all, but it was like such a fascinating thing to like see him, look at him, uh, hold him, and experience it. Um, I feel like it was kind of like the wild, wild west back in like the late nineties, two thousands, in terms of really uncommon, rare things being more accessible than now. Uh, things would just show up randomly all the time. It was pretty darn cool, and you know the you didn't never know who was keeping what and we weren't uh, posting about it all over uh, Facebook or anything. So it was pretty neat experience. And like, I'd never expected to see those in life or uh, knowing that there's a poison dart frog breeder in our area or, you know, uh, pretty cool stuff. Uh, you know, <coughs> I'm dying. Um, uh, like, have you ever watched like, uh, was it, Good morning uh, with Kathleen Hoda. There's that yeah. Corbin Maxi reptile guy. He came to the society meeting. He's from Boise. Oh, he really? came to the meetings when he was, he started coming. He was like eight. And they started doing all like all of these little shows around here. And he started doing like a public access TV show. And, that, and then he started traveling to all like late night talk shows. And now he's got like a gig where he's on national TV all the time. And he's That's a biologist. Awesome. But like part of that is when he started going to the reptile meeting. But more people know who he is because he's on national TV. You know, uh, he's he's a nice guy. He's came to the meetings before COVID happened, and but you know it's pretty cool to see someone who came when when I was in high school. He was like eight or ten. He was a short guy. He was a kid, and he had like all his energy. And he's all excited, and it's it's pretty amazing. He still had the same alligator that he got way back then. Now, and it's huge. But uh, you know, I'm not real tight with him, but I know him, and. Uh, it's pretty cool to see just someone make the most of their experience, like I said before. And uh, I know. And it's also having, TV. It's, it's having the society to kind of also push that along as well and get together with like-minded people. It definitely doesn't yeah. hurt. You know, and a lot of the people that were pretty advanced back then are retired or, or moved on from then. So I think now, um, you know, I think that's a lot of places where kind of in a lull for a while. I think I feel like until like the kind of country opens back up, people are, are able to gather again uh, and socialize. Uh, I, you know, maybe a lot of societies will struggle for a while in terms of staying relevant and, you know, having uh, material to cover as a group. Well, I'm hoping that this at least gets us stuck at home thinking about our animals, you know, yeah. maybe, you know, what we see now in the hobby now, which is, which is nice. We're getting more of the mentality in which people are establishing things that are, you know, commonly imported. People are breeding more and more species all the time. We're getting more and more captive bred stuff. And, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I think the future is bright for what we do, and it's exciting. Oh, yeah. I mean, now, if you know, if you can't go do stuff, you have time, you can go look for Bigfoot. That's that's real. That's why I wear this shirt for Owen McIntyre right here. <laughs> but uh, that's, that's Bigfoot crossing for, for anyone yeah. who is uh, on the yeah, audio. Exactly. <laughs> you know, a uh, small story is uh, a guy came into the gun shop uh, about a month and a half ago, and he was all shook up. He just came back from hunting, and he's up in the mountains, and he's like, man, the craziest thing happened. And I go, well, what happened? He's like, oh, well, I was done hunting for the day. I was back at camp. I'd fallen asleep, and at like 3 in the morning, I just hear this god-awful howl. Like, it freaked me out so bad. It, didn't, it wasn't a bear. It wasn't a wolf. I don't know what it was. It was so weird. It sounded so crazy. I got up right away, uh, you know, uh, left the tent about like 30 minutes later and I looked for tracks. There was no hoof prints. There was nothing. I couldn't find anything. It freaked me out real bad. So he said the same thing happened to him the next night. And so when he was in here, he, I could tell he was shooken up. And then while he's telling the story, I looked at him and go, is it Bigfoot? He's like, what do you think it was Bigfoot? Why do you say that? <laughs> Like he was like legit had a, a Bigfoot encounter and he was buying a, a revolver to protect himself to go back out and hunt. Nice, no. nice. Yeah, I mean you guys you guys have wolves. Have you out hunting, have you seen wolves? Oh yeah. Yeah. When they reintroduce wolves uh, to the Pacific Northwest, it's a different species. They're way larger, uh, a lot more aggressive feeders. Uh, they are not in danger whatsoever. Um, I was about to they, say, it's getting to the point where you're starting to get tags for them, or are they oh, yeah. still protected? You can just buy an over-the-counter tag for them and go you know, collect one. Um, they are big. We've got one uh, taxidermy in the shop. People think it's a bear because wow. it's like right next to a bear, and it's, it's the same size as a black bear. Holy shit, man. Yeah, that's a, it's a big canine. Yeah. Yeah, they're not small. They're freaky when you're out hunting and you hear them start howling and it gets getting dust and you're like, oh, I got to go. Yeah, I think, I mean, you guys just have true wilderness, which yeah. is something that like we just do not have here on the East Coast. It, you know, yeah. the funniest thing is you got to think about that. We've got uh, black bears, grizzly bears, mountain lions, wolves, wolverines, badgers, and then we got a rubber boa. <laughs> yeah. You are pretty, yeah, light light on the reptiles and what you do have a little derpy not as uh not as intimidating as that's <laughs> not the only snake we have but you know that's uh it's just kind of a funny thing yeah man you you trade off mammals for for cold-blooded animals a lot of the times in these places so um right i would say i mean you have you have elk and stuff right yeah we have elk and we have white-tailed yeah. deer mule deer uh yeah there's there's quite a bit uh you know a lot of people go hunting up here not a lot of people get anything but the experience is fun uh i've only collected one animal ever but uh you know the experiences and memories with my friends and my uh my dad or something i'll never forget um but you know it's uh it's fun being out in nature and just seeing how things work and and uh you know you feel pretty humbled when you are walking on a trail and you come back through it and there's big old cat prints that have been stalking you and you didn't realize it Wow. Yeah. So, I sketchy. Yeah. So do you do like multi-day hunts, like backpacking or how does it work? We usually like drive into an area and set up camp right next to like the truck. And then, uh, you know, we'll go walk around for a few miles and then come back to camp at night. Uh, never really done the backpack style. Uh, I have some friends that uh, do that. 
but I, uh, I, I didn't, I didn't go hunting this year. Um, uh, just busy at work. And I was like, what am I going to do if I kill an animal? Uh, I don't eat meat right now. This is pointless, but, uh, uh see, I thought you would make an exception. So you're, you're a hundred percent. You know, you know, I probably would, uh, I would make the exception. I feel like, uh, the, uh, the meats that are out there, that the wild meats are more healthy than whatever's at the store. But, you know, I didn't, I wasn't always vegan. It was uh, a thing my girlfriend wanted to do, try and be healthier. And I, I started doing it and I lost a bunch of weight, stopped having migraines and uh, worked out pretty good. I'm pretty crappy at it though. I eat cookies like nonstop and I know there's <laughs> eggs and milk in there. Yeah, like I definitely, um, definitely had like much less digestion issues and stuff like now. Right. Um, yeah, when I eat normally, like just without my, I eat pretty clean, but like, yeah, just meats and stuff, uh, digestion and like bloating and yeah, and I'm lactose mm-hmm. intolerant. Right, right. So yeah, being vegan yeah. was just. It was easy. I got, I'm like a deer. I have like little deer poops. Really easy <laughs> right now, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, I'm sure it, it works for some people better than others and, and all this thing, everyone's different. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I would definitely consider doing it again. I'm not, uh, I'm all for it. If you could do it, man, go for it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, so, everything's so less, so much less calorically dense and much more nutrient dense, like as a generalization, unless you're eating cookies. But, uh, yeah, for the most <laughs> Yeah, I found out I like love uh, Asian food. I eat like Thai food, Vietnamese food, like nonstop. It's bad. Hell yeah! I mean, at least you can get those out there, you know. Um, yeah. At least you're in a place where where you can get that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, man. Don't you live so, in like uh, where do you live, Pennsylvania? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But say um, if I was living in Oswego, New York, where I was living, say like six or seven years ago, which is why my company is called Port City, by the way, because that that's uh, considered the Port City, dude. Like you would not be able to get anything. You wouldn't you wouldn't even be able to go to the grocery store and get like vegan alternatives or anything like that. Like you would just have to you'd have to be like raw food vegan, like hardcore, yeah, or or go to Syracuse to get your shit. What's been happening in in Boise? Uh, that I, you know, last ten years, but a lot in the last like three years, is people moving from California up here. So you know that's afforded a lot of different options for me to eat. Huge downside is they actually sell their house down there for a buttload of money. They come yeah. up here and they pay like way over asking price on the houses in cash. It's like housing market's gone up like two hundred percent in a couple of years, and I can't afford a house now. Yeah, I mean that's what when I was in Colorado, you know, there's a whole like. Colorado native like they have like on their they have stickers on their trucks and stuff to be like fuck right. you Californians like pretty much they don't love love Californians but um yeah I mean same things happening here with like people moving from New York because they don't want to be in that big of a city going to a little bit smaller of a city get a little bit more space and they just overpay for everything yeah I don't know the the jobs I mean I make good money but the the jobs don't reflect the proportional influx in housing at all luckily yeah. the people we rent from are really cool and uh they 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 like us they've kept our rent really sustainable and uh, affordable yeah that was particularly difficult in in colorado like none of the the pay wasn't really wasn't great and the housing was just going up and up and i was 
yeah i was so poor in colorado um yeah. i would i would live there if i if i could man yeah it's just because you want to do the shrooms i mean <laughs> that's i can move to oregon um i can do oh, heroin. oh the, yeah you, they've decriminalized like everything oh my god you're the worst neighbor <laughs> but yeah, worst neighbors. it's but it's nice it's nice to to look out your window and see a mountain every day and be like you know there's something there's something out there besides just this bullshit that we drudge through every day you know just human shit yeah it's uh it's pretty crazy we got the city and like basically within an hour i can be way up in the mountains i can be at a lake i can be out in the desert i can be in a canyon uh it's a, it's a pretty cool area that's why everyone comes here um but and you know we do have all four seasons but generally it's just super hot in the summer and then it's just cold and dry not a lot of snow in the valley yeah man well it it was great finally having you on the podcast uh dixie's ruining the set again it's all right man (laughs) (laughs) so any um any way if people want to get in contact with you can they find you no uh no (laughs) pretty much my uh, my profile has little to do about snakes on Facebook, and I don't post anything on Instagram. But no, you can find me. I'm on Facebook. I got a picture of me holding a fake Stanley Cup from when I, I won a championship team with my hockey team. And uh, uh, otherwise, I'm like in all the different Blood Python groups. And that's mostly where I am. I'm awesome. nowhere else. Yep. So go check Kyle out. Go keep an eye on what... Uh... He's got going. I know you've been posting pictures in like the NPR chat and stuff like that um, oh, yeah. of the little Candoya babies. I think that's where I first saw him. Yeah, all these people that are in the green trees and carpet pythons are like, what the shit? What's this thing? <laughs> no, I mean, there's there's crossover there, right? Um, especially, and it's, it's weird, like, you know, you have blood python people who are also in a Candoya and stuff like that, but there's not many corn snake people in a Candoya, so... Uh, yeah, yeah, but uh, I'm, I'm going to make the leap. But um, if anyone wants to, please go check out our sponsors at focuscubedhabitats.com. Go check out their enclosures. Um, these amazing green tree enclosures that they're making for all those chondro snobs out there. Go check those out because it's like uh, it's high end. Like, I don't know if you've seen those, like the carbon perches and stuff like that. And it like the shiny mirrored front. Um, it basically... It's like a Ferrari for like yeah, so the Ferrari. Yeah, pretty cool. Kind of. I think some of those enclosures that they make would do really well for different Candoya species. Yeah, and I think what I'm going to do, I would love to set up a, a cohab, like a pair cohab, all naturalistic or something like that. I don't know if that's offensive to some. I mean, I could say it a third time. I mean, if you put two animals together, you have more or less animals. (laughs) Hey, it works that way too, doesn't it? (laughs) Damn it. You're making it it sound less appealing. Um, (laughs) But if you guys want to check out what I have available corn snake wise, uh, portcitypet.com. I have isostrate. I have biostrate, bioactive substrates, and, uh, and isopod substrates. All that good stuff. A bunch of different products for Apache products. So please go check those out. Kyle, it was nice talking to you. And I'll catch everyone next week.